Welcome to A Page in History. Join us on a fascinating journey as we delve into the memories of the world-famous NBC Pages. Get ready to hear first-hand accounts of their unforgettable experiences as they navigated the hallways of Burbank, California and the iconic 30 Rockefeller Plaza. Prepare to hear fascinating stories that were never meant to reach the ears of the general public. And now, your host for A Page in History, David Harris Katz. Our upcoming guest embarked on his media journey as an NBC page in the early 80s and remained deeply entrenched in the industry ever since. His page career has been peppered with riveting tales that are sure to captivate you. For example, we'll dive into the electrifying moment when Andy Kaufman made a surreal appearance on David Letterman's show only to have wrestling legend Jerry Lawler wipe the grin right off Andy's face. Brace yourself for an insider's account of that unforgettable studio encounter from the very person who witnessed it all unfold. And hear how legendary comedian and actor Milton Berle once hatched a plan to make a surprise appearance on David Letterman's live show. But our forthcoming guest had to play the role of gatekeeper. Tune in to discover how Uncle Milty handled the disappointing news and the intriguing backstory behind this unforgettable moment. And he's home. Our next guest had the incredible opportunity to meet the iconic Desi Arnaz, all thanks to the encouragement of the unmistakable voice of Don Porto. But the burning question is, was Lucy just around the corner? And did you know that the bold and uproarious female comedian, actress, and host Joan Rivers had a hidden talent? It's Downing Shots. Stay tuned to learn about our guest's memorable tequila shot experience with the self-deprecating trailblazer of comedy. And just in case you weren't aware, talk shows like Late Night with David Letterman are typically recorded live to tape. This means that they record the show earlier in the day, but execute it as if it were being broadcast to you in real time. They usually don't pause or redo a joke or segment, except for that one memorable occasion when our guest was right there to witness what unfolded when David Letterman was left utterly stunned. And do you have a belief in magic? The mystical magician Doug Henning certainly does, and he also believes in our next guest's extraordinary ability to prevent overzealous individuals from storming the stage. Brace yourself for a truly bizarre and astonishing tale that you won't believe. And while NBC pages are primarily tasked with giving tours, you'll be surprised to learn about the unique assignment our guest was handed, which ultimately led to the potential of an abundance of Bacardi rum. Tune in to hear this fascinating story. And speaking of alcoholic preferences, you'll discover the intriguing tale of how legendary radio personalities Howard Stern and Don Imus developed a penchant for a doer's white label scotch. Then we'll delve into the contrasting ways some celebrities conduct themselves in public. We're putting old school against new school. It's a showdown between Bob Hope and Sylvester Stallone. Who will shine like a true star in this comparison? Plus, you'll hear his experience with NBC newsman Tom Brokaw 
and many other fun stories, including his exciting life as a TV news reporter where he currently works at Fox 5 in Washington, D.C. Please give it up for a super nice guy and someone I'm looking forward to chatting with. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Bob Bernard. Thank you, Dave. Bob, Bob, Bob. Welcome welcome to the show. How's it going, Bob? Uh, All right. I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you? (laughs) Good. Um, So you made it through that introduction. You you, you have a very exciting life and um, uh, very excited to do all these things. (laughs) Hopefully for the listeners, too, but uh, certainly exciting for me. And you're you're calling us from beautiful downtown, uh, oh, outside Bethesda, Bethesda, Maryland, which was the home of uh, the Discovery Channel back in the day. Yeah, just uh, down the street here in Silver Spring. Yeah, so just outside D.C. And uh, thanks for having me on. Oh, my pleasure. No, thank you so much. Um, I remember well, we spoke, you know, uh, off mic um, a few weeks ago, and you had so many great stories. So I'm excited to have you on and uh, share them with the listeners of A Page in History. So I'll tell you what, you know, exciting for me. I hope that they'll enjoy them. <laughs> you know, if, if you're of a certain age, these names will sound familiar. If you're much younger, you'll be like, uh, who's he talking about? <laughs> right. Get out the I mean, get out your uh, get out, get out the Internet. Back back in the day, we had to if you didn't know these names, you would you you would have no way of looking them up unless going to the library or something. Encyclopedia. Right. Go encyclopedia. to the local library and grab an encyclopedia. And check them out. So I guess and now it's funny. I my last guest, um, or or depending on when this airs, uh, one of the guests I had on the show is Joe DeTulio, who was the uh, production designer for Saturday Night Live, and he you know builds all the sets for for SNL, but he also built the sets for the movie Man in the Moon, which featured Andy Kaufman. So he sort right. of recreated all that stuff. Now, I personally saw the the episode live, watching David Letterman, um, whatever year that was. You remember when when Andy Kaufman was on? Well, the, the night he got slapped was the summer yeah. of eighty two, so July of nineteen eighty two. Oh my God! So I remember yeah. sitting there with my brother. Uh, I'll give a shout out to my brother Howie, which which this is the hey first there, time I think I'm giving him a shout out. We used to literally back in the day. We'd be like, hey, you want to watch Letterman? And we were excited because we would stay up late. And again, it sounds crazy. You know, like back then, nobody really watched uh, Letterman. You know, like that was really late. You know, oh, my God, we're going to stay up till 1230. But we watched it, you know, live. And when I watched it, it looked very, it was like, oh, my God, what just happened? So now take us back, take the audience back to that day in the summer of of, uh, 82. Two, you said was it yes so take us back and explain to us what you were doing and the whole story and everything that unfolded well david i was assigned as pages are or were then routinely to the uh, studio floor right outside the 6a door like in the studio the uh, hallway and what have you was on the other side of the door the studio on it's there uh off to your left you know primarily to make sure nobody just got excited and ran out of the 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 uh studio audience and jumped on the set, but just to help out in any way you could. So I had a bird's eye view to this thing. And uh, David had both Jerry Lawler, the wrestler, and Andy Kaufman on at the same time. And they'd had a kind of a, a history because Andy Kaufman had gone around and wrestled women, trying to you know show that it was fake. He got into the ring with Jerry Lawler and he did a pile drive on him. I think it was in Tennessee. 
some months before and and Andy said it almost broke his neck could have killed him so he's wearing a neck brace oh, Dave right. has them both on the set uh they're talking and kind of Andy saying you know I deserve an apology and this and that and and Jerry Lawler was kind of insulting him and right as they were going to the first break uh Jerry Lawler stood up and, and you can see the video on YouTube he just slaps him across the face and I mean he really hit him knocking Andy out of the chair um and Andy kind of got himself together and walked right past me and out, you know, into the hallway, past the door there. And then when they came back from the commercial break, Dave was not sure if if uh, Andy was going to come back on. And he did. And that's when he yelled profanity. I mean, we could hear it with our ears. And there are some versions of the recording where you hear him cursing. They cuckooed it out that night. Um, and then Andy eventually threw a cup of coffee at uh, Jerry Lawler. And it really angered Dave. And uh, so from, from my point of view, uh, when they ended the segment, uh, Andy Kaufman wanted to come back on again, just himself and kind of uh, have another segment to explain his side of what just happened to Dave. Dave was having no, no part of it. And he was like, get him out of here. No. And I, you know, I think they had a history of being somewhat friendly, um, in the years since the tale has come that, oh, Andy and Jerry had planned this out and orchestrated this thing and choreographed the whole thing. And, um, you know, this was such a great put on. And all I can tell you is from my 20-year-old self at the time, 41 years ago, standing there watching it, it seemed very real. Andy seemed genuinely upset. Dave seemed pissed off and, you know, basically told him, get the heck out of here. You're done. Um, and I never saw any sign that uh, Andy and Jerry winked at each other like, boy, was that great. It, that, that was not the atmosphere, the vibe in the studio that night, even though years later people say, oh, that was the greatest put on ever. Right. Right. Yeah. I have to say that that and I've watched it, you know, um, carefully and it looks scary. And especially when, you know, with the you know, it's like with the coffee, you know, it, it like he wasn't really, you know, it didn't, it didn't look like it was planned. And he just, you know, he, he he got so agitated that he just grabbed it and threw it. And then um, and then even and Dave made a joke out of it, but he was not happy. Right. Yeah. He's and it's funny because Letterman, you know, when he's there, he kind of, you know, if there was a rock. You know, maybe he would have crawled under it, but he looked so uncomfortable because he didn't know what to do. He just he just saw this and he was, you know, he, he he obviously makes a joke out of it, trying to, like, lighten the situation. But it did look, um, you know, it certainly looked looked real. And the slap certainly looked real. Oh, I, you could hear it. You, know, you could hear it on yeah. the tape. You could see it there. and You're watching it. And, you know, he Dave's shtick was to have kind of things be a little, you know, off center, you know, not right. the norm. But this thing, you know, th there were security guards in, in the studio and and Candy, his makeup person and I had to kind of get out of the way of Andy coming back and forth. And and it, it was just um, it, it didn't feel entertaining at the time. It was just like, wow, what just happened? This was a, a weird, awful thing. And the show was only that show. had started in February of that year. So it was only, you know, five months into the late night with David Letterman uh, show. And it just and I had only been there at that point a little over a month and it just it clearly so I was no expert, but it sure right. felt raw and uncomfortable for everybody. Right. And and what about the studio audience? Did they any feedback? From you know, anything? nothing. You know, I, and again, my eyes were so focused on what was going on right in front of me down on the stage. Um, I, I can't recall how the audience reacted. Um they, they sat there mostly quietly, maybe laughed at Dave's uh, offhanded joke about, you know, don't ever throw coffee. But uh, 
Um, it was just, it was an odd, and I, again, my tunnel vision was kind of just there on the stage floor as parts were moving, and it was just kind of odd, and the cameras were spinning, and Dave wasn't sure if Andy was coming back on for the segment he was supposed to be on, and then afterward, you know, just kind of trying to dry himself off and his desk off and, you know, waving, and and clearly, I, I forget who it was who was asking to come on. I don't, I don't recall it being Andy saying, hey, I want to come on, but the word being, hey, Andy wants to come back on. And Dave was just like, no, no. Um, and so um, the audience, that you watched it, I saw it, whoever happened to be in the audience that night will never forget it either. And I wonder, because, you know, um, you know, there, there, uh, as you mentioned, there was talk that, that, um, that it was either set up, but there's always a chance that Letterman knew that they were going to go at it. You know, he said, okay, we're going to have both on, maybe they will get into it a little bit but there is that chance that 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 you know letterman may say yes it was planned but maybe it went to the level where he was like well i didn't expect that to happen which then may may have made him truly uncomfortable because he did look pretty uncomfortable um with it you know and, and like again not that i know dave so well but it seemed that he truly looked uncomfortable so maybe it just got to a place where he's like, well, I, I didn't know you were going to beat him across the face or knock him onto the floor. So maybe it really Davey took was on a come real... In, yeah. Yeah. And cursing and everything. He did have a prop. Like he had a, you know, you can hear it on the, on the, um, you know, the, the videos that you can see on YouTube or whatever, uh, kind of like a foot pedal that like kind of blew the ring, you know, like, you know, ding the ring, like the bell, Hey, that oh, round is yeah. over. And they kind of laughed at that. So, you know, he probably thought if they kind of were jawing at each other, I've got this little prop here, I can. But for someone to hit, some, assault somebody, right. you know, on on taped live television right there in front of him and then come back in cursing and throwing coffee, that part of it was probably not scripted or planned. Right. Now, it's funny, on, on our website, a page in history.tv, I don't have any comments I don't have a comment section, but maybe I'll put a comment section. So if anyone who's hearing this, yeah. that maybe worked on the staff or, or if Dave happens to be listening to this podcast, <laughs> <laughs> let us know exactly what was, but it, but it is fascinating. And, and again, if it, you know, I mean, to this day, everybody, you know, thinks that it was real and you were there and, and it would be interesting to hear some more insight on it. So if anyone's listening and they really have any more feedback on that, that would be uh, pretty cool. And, and I, you, I think Dave didn't Dave recreate his role in the movie Man on the Moon with with uh, you know Jim Carrey playing Andy Kaufman. I I think Dave was there and they recreated that scene. If I'm not mistaken. Well, now it's funny. I think in the movie. Um, yeah, when I spoke to Joe, who said, uh, which was sort of interesting, and one is I didn't see the movie, which I'm ashamed, which I embarrassed to say i guess i don't know but i will now that we're talking about it, I, I will actually watch it but joe told me that the snl uh scene was actually shot in snl in in 8h like in they 8H? Wow. yeah they recreated the the it's like they recreated the 8h set in 8h so right behind wow. what you see on the in the movie like where where the where the walls are like right behind it are the real walls and i and i was like well why didn't they just do that elsewhere but i guess they used all the lights and the uh the the bleachers you know uh you know they didn't have to recreate everything so that he just did a, a little bit of it but i will watch that and I'll, and I'll ask yeah. about it because that is i'm pretty sure dave played himself in that that scene in that yeah. section oh that's funny so yeah. i'm gonna have to check that out um 
That's and then also you just it's something you just reminded me. I think I remember those little metal boxes behind his desk, right? I didn't, I didn't, I only until you just I mentioned it with, with the sound effects when he would throw, well, I don't, I doubt he did the pencil or anything like that, but I, I somehow remember, and again, if there are any pages and we'll, we'll, we'll ask Ken Hommel, who, who's our resident expert, if there was a box, because somehow I remember the cables and a box with a button on it, never touched it. Cause maybe I thought it was something, you know, important <laughs> i don't know but if anyone's listening again that would be interesting if 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 dave actually controlled any of that which of course it was probably unionized but but um yeah i don't remember i don't remember yeah, those so, okay so no. i have to okay um so that was amazing so that was so interesting so now uh speaking of letterman um uh and again we've had some previous pages uh speak about their experiences when people either try to bust into the studio or let them and throws them across you know t tells the pages to go do something so you had the experience of, of an experience now again most some people may not know who milton burl is <laughs> but um right. so tell us about what happened during that letterman stay i guess right with with Mil milty yeah, well, this was Studio 6A, which back in the late 40s was the studio where Milton Berle on Tuesday nights would would broadcast his program live. So I wasn't around in 1948. Oh, wow. but, oh I didn't know that. So um, that was his studio? That was uh, his studio. Oh. Uh, yeah. Wow. So and 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 this particular night, uh, Milton Berle was not a guest or a planned guest on Late Night with David Letterman. He was across the hall going to be the last guest on live at five which yep. is a 5 p.m to 6 p.m show letterman would tape from 5 30 to 6 30 and my assignment that evening was inside same place i was the night of the uh andy kaufman jerry lawler uh incident was right inside that door and i thought oh my goodness milton burl is right here just across the hall and i'm not going to see him because he's going to be on done with the show and out out the the door at 30 rock so I loved the Letterman show that particular night. I was disappointed that I, I wasn't free to, you know, right. gawk at Milton Berle, the legend who was <laughs> back at 30 rock. Cause he was That's a, funny. you know, a Beverly Hills kind of guy rarely right. came to New York here. He was in the building and I was in his old studio Well, the door opens up and there's Milton Berle. Wow. So he comes walking into the studio right next to me goes, I, I forget if it went right in front of me or right behind me, but he ended up just to the left of me. Um, and He's looking in the show. Dave's interviewing his guest. Um, and so that they're, they're in the middle of their segment. And I'm just I kind of look over and, and out of the corner of my eye, me staring at Milton Berle next to me, I see Barry Sands and Bill Wendell, the producer, executive producer and the announcer for late night waving their hands at me. And I, and I don't realize what's going on until I all of a sudden I see Milton Berle starting to take some steps forward. They picked up before I did that, oh, he's going to try to walk right on in the middle of the interview and do one of those old Bob Hope on The Tonight Show, walk out and the audience goes crazy because here's Bob Hope and you weren't planning to see him. And they're waving at me like with the and shaking their head saying, no, no, no. And I'm realizing, oh, my God, I know what they're asking me to do. And so I literally grabbed his right like bicep. He was wearing a suit, you know, sports jacket and slacks, grabbed his arm and and kind of held him and he kind of flipped his head at me and and i just whispered because the show was going on i think they want you to wait for the next commercial break i just made it up just to kind of oh, it was that was the good, only thing actually. i, I was like of. i was like oh that sounds very good okay i was pretty impressed with myself <laughs> when good. i look yeah. back on it but at the moment it was just like i think they want you to wait till the next commercial break he pulled his arm out of my hand and cursed 
said, I don't need this. And, and I don't need this. And he walked right out of this, he barged out of the studio. And I heard from a fellow page who was on the elevator there that he ended up getting onto that he was cursing and saying he was going to call Brandon Tartikoff, who was at that time, I think the president of NBC. And he was really angry. They go to commercial break and Bill Wendell, who I got to know, being, you know, the announcer for late night and always on the floor and what have you, um, came over and say, he, he knew I was a little rattled. He said, oh, don't worry about it. He's an asshole. Nobody likes Milton Berle. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, what are you saying? This was like a legend. If you're if you love television, whether you were alive when he was doing his show or not, you knew that, you know, he was missed. He was literally referred to as Mr. Television. And here he was right in his own studio in New York City. And I had just had to, like, hold him back and got cursed at by him. <laughs> and they were trying to, you know, make me feel good. Like, don't worry about it. <laughs> that. Wow. that we didn't want that to happen, and Dave would not have been happy if he had just barged in the middle of the interview and and made an appearance live on TV. Right. Well, there's two two things. It's it's interesting because, you know, even even me as an end when I was when, well when I was a page, and then like I would, I got a job for WNBC, um, and even going into the building at all all hours of the day, you kind I I kind of felt like it was my home. I don't know. Did you ever feel Absolutely. that way? Absolutely. Like yes. I, I got this feeling that that I literally felt like it was home. It was it was I I knew the place like the back of my hand. It was just very there was something special about it. And so for Milton Berle, you know, in, in theory, he's like, you're in my studio. Letterman's in my studio, you know, like like this was my house before yeah. it was your house. And, and I helped to make TV what it is today. Right. Exactly. He He's like, right. Exactly. It's like, and by the way, if it wasn't for me and some, some other folks, you know, TV, as we know, it may not have taken off like it did. And, you know, he, he was, you know, and again, he, it's true. He, he, he was not one to come into to New York often. So here it is. He's in the studio, he's in the buildings in the, you know, on that floor across the hall, live at five wants to walk across. And he probably, for all as we know, he could have been thinking about that on his whole whole plane trip over where he's like, I'm going to do this. It's going to be so much fun. And then and it's true. And then thanks, punk, David, I never looked at it that way. Thank you, know, you so much. Yeah. Now I feel worse than I did. Yeah, Then a punk like you, you know, <laughs> but but it, but it's funny because, of course, look, you know, if, if Bill Wendell and uh, Barry Sands, they if they didn't want him to because because well, there's two things. And again, for the for the um listeners and we'll talk about this in, a, in i promoted something but the show you know is live to tape which which i mentioned and we'll talk about another instance so the show they're recording they're run, they're running tape and it's recording so when when letterman and the guests and they're shooting the show uh some shows some like sitcoms you know they stop and move cameras and and it could take eight hours to shoot you know a, a 30 minute show but for Letterman and and the Tonight Show and those shows, they're all live to tape, so they're recording. And if Milton Berle were to enter and literally distract Letterman or or cause a problem that he wasn't expecting, it literally is a problem because they literally have to stop tape and start again. Now, I personally loved Letterman. Um, for those instances when somebody would just walk in or let him in, you know, let him in as, as you know, he, he interrupted Brian Gumbel's um, today show oh, yeah. appearance when he did the bull hunt out the horn. I, my whole life is based on 
those Letterman isms of doing crazy stuff. And and my understanding and those for, that are listening, you know, David Letterman, um, you know, went outside the uh, it was the 11th floor. I forget which floor he was on, but he he used a bullhorn while they were on the, you know, record, you know, shoot, yeah. actually live on the Today Show. That was live. That wasn't even live to tape. It was actually live and thought it would be funny. And then um, Brian Gumble got pissed. And I think that they didn't speak for they, they may not have spoken to this day. I don't I don't even know. Um, and it, I find it funny that, like, you know, Dave loved to do that kind of thing. But if you do it to him right. when he's not prepared, you know, and and maybe if Milton Berle had walked on, they would have kept the cameras rolling and hell, Milton, sit down. Let's chat for a minute. And thanks so much for coming by and not start it over and just kind of right. gone with it. But and and I'm assuming Dave, if he didn't know Milton Berle was going to be in the building that that night, must have, you know, by his demeanor or his just his general way of doing things made it clear to those people don't let milton walk on otherwise they would have said oh this is going to be great dave's going to love this but it was clearly no don't let it happen and don't be pissed because dave would not have wanted that so right. you know so yeah there must, have know. Been, there must have been something where either they didn't they they were short on time and they didn't want to screw up a segment coming up or Letterman wanted you know didn't want to interrupt the segment that he was in do you remember who was on the, who he was talking to at that moment you know, for the longest time, I thought it was Robert Duvall doing an interview about a, a movie he made. But, you know, as time has gone, it's been almost 40 years. I'm I'm not so sure. But that was right. that night. I remember telling people, oh, my gosh, Robert Duvall was on in Milton Berle. Almost, so I'm assuming it was. But, you know, over right. time, I can't say for sure it was Robert Duvall. But and perhaps because it was it, it was I know it was a serious interview. They weren't goofing around. Right. But I think the timing wasn't right for a Milton Berle interruption. Mm. Um, but I believe it was Robert Duvall on on talking with Dave about something, a movie he made or or what have you. And uh, the timing was clearly not right. But, uh, you know, when you when you when you put it that way, that geez, maybe Milton was thinking, oh, this is going to be great. You know, <laughs> Bob Hope does it with Johnny. I'm going right. to do it with Dave. Um, it just did not go off. And oh, wow. <laughs> Well, and again, you, you know, to your credit and again, you know, um, to the credit of page, you know, all the pages, you know, it's not like we sat down or, or our managers, you know, sat down and really sort of said, and by the way, if, you know, a famous celebrity tries to get onto one of the shows that you're standing at the door for, this is what you do there. None of that exists. They're pretty much like, by the way, you're going to go stand at, at the, at, you know letterman's door or or any of these you know shows you can stand at the door um and the fact is oftentimes people did get on tv or you know they 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 would you know letterman or or um uh you know they would goof wrong uh, goof a, around with the pages but they don't, we don't know what the hell we're doing and especially at 20 years old where you know 21 oh. we're kind of like i mean again even even for you to put your hand on him i mean yeah you're you're sort of like they're like hold them hold them hold them i mean what are you supposed to do put your hands up and stand in front of them or you know or right or say look i can't touch this legend you know right, exactly not that that was an assault but like right. i'm physically grabbing him but right you know that was a quick reaction like they're saying no and and he's starting to move and the only way i could think of and again it was just a total spur of the moment was grab him and and Whisper that, you know, they'd like you to wait until the commercial break. By then he was gone. <laughs> wow. It was it, Yeah, very strange. Wow. And again, and again, for, for you know, Letterman was so known for doing that in, in 
for everybody. I mean, like he would just show up at GE when he used to give him gifts, you know, with the cat, with the security guard. I mean, he caused a lot of problems, which I loved. Um, but out of, to my understanding, none of that was planned. And he certainly pissed off a lot of people, which, which I, which I, course, I thought you, was funny. So, Absolutely. I could tell you a story of, of one time they did have to actually stop down because someone walked on the set. Um, yeah. I mentioned that at the top of the show. Yeah. That was um, somebody, did somebody um, break through security or something? When he, yeah, when he tells about that. Well, it was weird because a lot of, if you're a fan of Letterman, uh, and so if you're a former page, you know who we're talking about. If you're a viewer, maybe you might remember, but uh, Biff Henderson uh, Biff, was- right. Totally nice was, guy. Love, oh, such a, such a nice guy. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, he, he was a, a floor director, and, and yet he became on camera over the years more and more popular and known. But at that time, he might have, again, I was there Letterman's first year, a year and a half of him doing late night at NBC. Um, but Biff was behind the scenes, and, and he came up to me at one point and was going to say something, and then, you know, he kind of, he, grabbed my attention, then he wandered off. Well, in the first segment of the show, when Dave does his monologue and then sits down, a guy, and I'll never forget, he's wearing like a, 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 a tan corduroy sports jacket. And he comes walking from behind the set, like behind the wall, between like the wall of the building and the, and the set there, oh. and walks around right past me. Again, I was stationed as I often was right there on the floor. And goes and sits down in the seat next to Dave. And he's got a briefcase and he puts it up on the desk. Excuse me. And I'm thinking, oh, this is funny. This is like a, a shtick. And all of a sudden you got the sense that, oh my gosh, like the 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 Barry Sands, the executive producer, Bill Wendell, Dave pushes himself back in his chair. And and I I can tell, oh, this is this is not supposed to happen. And they yelled at me to go get security. And and I wasn't security. Security would be out in the hallway, out just kind of out by the desk, out right in the in the, the hallway between studios 6A and B. So I ran out, got this guy named Greg, who was the security guard. And I told him, hey, some guys just busted onto the set. We ran in there and we didn't even hesitate. The two of us walked up, grabbed this guy. He grabbed one arm. I grabbed the other. And we just pulled him off the set and walked him out into the hallway, leaving his briefcase, which was full of newspaper clippings. It was just but after the fact. The thought was, what if that was a gun? What the heck? And right. so they they stopped the show and they said they kind of regrouped and and Dave actually spoke to the audience and said, look, this was that was not planned. It was a little, you know, frightening. We don't normally do this, but because it's our first segment of the show, we're going to start over again. I, we're going to do the same jokes. Please bear with us, you know. But and in fact, they cheered them louder and they laughed louder mm. on the redo of the monologue and then they sat down and carried on with the show but at one point in there biff henderson came over to me and he said oh my gosh that's what i was going to tell you was we've been alerted that there's some guy roaming in the building saying he needs to speak to david letterman so i was going to tell you to keep an eye out for this guy mm. and i didn't and he walked on but like that afternoon evening night since then i've often thought he could have said that, but the way the guy walked past me with such confidence, and yeah. because Dave often did these impromptu things, I don't think I would have grabbed him. I think he would have just walked right on, and I would have been like, oh, that's who Biff was talking about. Right. So for my own sake, I was glad that Biff had never warned me, but it was one of those very – it was only one of two times that while I was there, they ever had to stop down the show 
started over. And frankly, my, my shift had ended. So I was back in my street clothes and I went back up to the hallway by the time the show ended to see Dave and say, Hey, sorry about that. He had changed into his clothes and with his little entourage was walking down the hallway toward their end of the building and go, to go up to their offices. And he, he didn't even look at me. He just kind of blew me off. You know? <laughs> I and I felt say. bad. I was like, right. He, he didn't give a shit about me. I was like, Hey Dave, sorry. I didn't, you know, the guy got on there and he just kind of walked and was like, you know, away from me, punk. And I don't think he was mad at me, but he wasn't just going to engage with me. But I felt bad that I didn't do my job in a sense, which was to stop someone from just busting onto the set. Even though, again, at the time, for the first moments, I thought, oh, this is part of the show. Right. And again, in in fairness to you, um, there's so many. It's funny. I've gotten into so many places by just being confident and just walking mm -hmm. in. I mean, Absolutely. my God, I, I walk around that. I mean, I could, you know, I, between the parties and doing all this crazy, it's just you just pretend you belong and pretty much nobody stops you. So, you know, in fairness to you, I mean, you don't know. I mean, you don't know who these people are. And again, as a 21 year old kid or whatever, you're standing there. You don't you know. And, and remember, he had like Lori Diamond, I guess, which which, which I mean, she was there at the time. That was like his assistant. And, you know, they, they were people that were yeah. like that were always hanging around. And those are the folks that would know, like, who's real, who's not real, or who who, who right. can come near team. Dave. Yeah, and it's funny. And again, it's so sad because, and again, huge fan of Letterman. Love the guy, you know, there from day one. Um, it's unfortunate because his reaction to you is pretty much the reaction as it, as he was to everyone in the building. I mean, he... He I don't think he, you know, like, would it kill him to just, hey, thanks for being there. It's not your fault, whatever. And I, you know, I appreciate it. But he never, I don't think I ever saw him or me personally. Did he ever even say hello? He, it just, we didn't exist. He walked past us. He didn't, you know, I yeah, don't know. He, he shook was, my hand once on, on the show. He was going from the set into the green room and he walked by me and kind of, he, I, I wish I had saved it. Uh, you know, I didn't save right. the recording that night, but, you know, he, he had said something like congratulations on the promotion, you know, making fun of right. the fact that I was the lowest level there. at NBC, <laughs> And I laughed right along with right. him. So he acknowledged me like on the show, walking past me in that same spot one time. But yeah, he was the kind of guy like people would say, what's Dave like? And I'm like, first of all, when he comes into the building and goes past the information booth in, in the lobby of 30 Rock to go up the elevators to to uh, his offices of the studio, you wouldn't know it's him. He's wearing dungarees and a ball cap and it, totally like incognito. Glasses, he he, glasses and such. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and like a, you know, like a painter's hat or something. You know, he just, yeah. he, he kind of dressed oddly. Um, and then I have this distinct memory of him coming into the studio once and seeing, you know, uh, uh, Willie, Paul Schaefer, I think Steve Jordan, you know, the original four-piece band. Mm. And just walking into the studio and grabbing a handful of peanut M&Ms that he was eating and just winging at the guys. Didn't even say hi, didn't, hey guys. That was his odd way of of saying hello to people. In that case, that one day was you know, a handful of peanut M&Ms soaring across <laughs> the studio, you know? Uh, I think he's gotten nicer and mellower over the yeah. years, but in his 30s, he was, you know, kind of an odd guy. Yeah, he definitely, and again, I'll I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, he, you know, will 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 say that he was just very shy and that he just didn't want to talk to anybody. And it was amazing because when the when the when the lights went on, he came out of his shell, did his thing. Once the lights and the cameras went off, 
he put his baseball cap on, grabbed his football, just was very quiet, didn't talk to anybody, didn't want to talk to anybody or, 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 you know, and maybe he was just so, you know, full of thought and, and everything he that he had to go through. So, um, yeah, it just, and, and again, we've, I've had this conversation in the past, unlike let's say Leno, who literally would walk through the building. And if you said hello to him, he would do a, a five minute stand up routine. Oh, really? how you doing? Where you're from? What's going on? I mean, he would, he was really just talk to anyone at like, you know, anything you wanted to know. I mean, he really was, he engaged with everybody and was very, very nice to everybody. So, you know, two opposite ends of the spectrum. Totally. So, yeah, that so was that not was, Dave. Yeah, it was not Dave. But um, yeah, it's, it's just that whole thing. Um, it just again, I just think about the, the early days, the sets, um, all the crazy things that happened. Um, that was good times. That was that was great television. And and I think that Dave's early shows before he went to even CBS and prior to, you know, the CBS shows were not what set him apart he just you know the the original shows the ones and especially the ones that you were a part of that is is television folklore i mean that's you you were part of like times that were just unbelievable were were there any other instances that you remember that were like yeah i I was i was gonna i mentioned there was one other time that i witnessed where they actually stopped down the recording which apparently someone had told me i don't know if it was bill wendell or one of the people in the in the production staff or whatever said that you know, the overtime for all the union people there, you know, mm-hmm. if you stop down, then it's going to be at least a half hour of overtime, which was thousands of dollars, you know, for point, yeah. all the people involved in the production of the show. So it mattered um, when thousands of dollars 40 years ago was a lot of money, obviously. Um, but the only other time they stopped down the show was when Carol King was a musical guest mm-hmm. and she had her piano there. And I forget at what point in the show, it was not in that first segment, obviously they'd done the monologue, some other stuff. So it was kind of midway through the show she sat down at her piano to play a song and got lost or messed up and stopped and said, Oh my goodness, you know, can we start over? I'm sorry. And they were kind of like, uh, not really. (laughs) And she said, really? So they did because she had stopped and kind of asked them to. And I guess at that point, how do you just keep going? So they had to redo that, which put them over the hour and, you know, they, they didn't want to do that. So those are only the two times that I witnessed, um, that they actually had to, to restart. And, but you talk about those early days. When I was there, Chris Elliott, who became yeah, famous right, on right. the show, was a production assistant. Yeah. He was the guy going down the line of, of, of uh, studio audience members waiting in the hallway downstairs at 30 Rock. You know, they'd hand out blue cards, tell us about yourself, looking for things that they could maybe use in right. the, the, the opening that Dave would do. He would kind of like greet everyone before the show started and have a little banter with the audience. And so... The production assistants would try to see, you know, if there was a quirky or interesting story amongst the audience that night. And Chris Elliott was one of the young guys, only a year or two older than I was. And, you know, he was fresh out of college. I was about to start my senior year. Uh, and he was there. He was just a kind of a kid, in a sense, behind the scenes. And then obviously a funny guy and started doing some odd things that, you know, the guy beneath the, this, you know, the, the floor seats. and all his <laughs> right, things. Guy, right. And, you know, he's a legendary guy like his dad was. But uh, when I was there, Chris Elliott was just a, a PA. And it's funny because I do remember again watching the show, seeing him. And and again, that was the beauty of the show because it was like, who the hell is this guy? And then he would, yeah, he'd be the guy be- beneath the seats. 
and then of course he would he would be very serious like he would he would come out and he would like yeah you know with his very serious uh look <laughs> and be pissed off and you know do all these funny things and again that was the the magic of the show because it was you you, you know again they was probably improvising you know they had a, an idea of what they were going to do but they they were uh somewhat improvising you know doing these things and then taking and then as he started catching on he would he would do more do more and more um which was amazing i mean i, I love those shows they're so good oh, it, it yeah. was it was great times so and when you it's funny you see dave now with the gray hair and the beard and you look back on some of those things and god he was he looked so young and then yeah yet, it was a long time ago all right. And it seems like it, it, it seems like yesterday we're, we're, we're really old. <laughs> it seems, it's very vivid. It, I know, David, don't remind that funny? me. Yeah, no. Oh, they, it's so funny. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and just being able to walk around the place, like you say, almost like you owned it in it, in the sense that if, if you were a page, you were part of guest relations, you wore the blue blazer and nobody stopped you. So you could, I found it fascinating, like walking in and, and, and chatting with the people who'd been there, you could tell, the older guys who'd been there for a while and they'd say, Hey, come here, take a look. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they'd say, see this closet where we keep all the sets for the doctors, which was a soap opera with Alec Baldwin back in the day that they recorded oh. there uh, at, at 30 rock. See, see all those sets that, you know, they're like on, on, you know, wheels and whatever they could move things in. And that it was, it was literally a closet. And I remember the one guy pointed up and said, see the, the glass window up there. I'm like, yeah, Oh, that's interesting. He goes, this was one of the old radio studios back in the day and there would be an audience sitting you know one or two deep around the top up there on the second floor looking down into what is now a closet and that was one of the old radio studios it was just to me fascinating just to to have that window a privilege for a punk from long island to have that privilege to walk around that place and and learn the history from the people who knew it who were who were still working there and pinching yourself all along the way all right. I remember that. And I was very, um, no, you know, I, I was very nosy. So I too, I mean, I used to walk, I think I know every inch of that building. I mean, I'm, I literally would go in and out of every stairwell door, anything I could find. And you mentioned some of these folks, you mentioned like Biff, Biff earlier. I mean, it was pretty funny. Cause remember we, you know, I grew up, you saw Biff on TV and then I'm walking around the building and there's Biff. And you you would just be like, hey, what's going on? And he nicest guy in the world. Hey, he would always say hello, no problem. Just the, he's so nice. And then you see like Don, you you know, um, I mentioned Don Pardo. We I guess we could talk about that soon. But even Don Pardo, again, you know, this Don Pardo. It's Don Pardo. This is the guy. And to see him around and just walking around the building, I would take every single opportunity I had to go talk to him. And he would, he, you know, he, he'd sit with me for six hours if he could, you know, like yeah, telling you stories, you know, all the, so yeah, walking around that building and seeing all of these legendary folks that like worked in the building and stars that were floating around, like I said, some of the, some of the, the voice, a lot of the other voiceover talent and sure. like staff people for other shows and things. They were so nice and they really could no, they, they were not bothered at all i don't know was that your experience like yeah they to okay. just... I, I think don pardo enjoyed chatting with me and, and right. i'm sure with others i mean it i i i he made me never feel like i was imposing on his time it was always like hey and he it's like he was a a, a raconteur in a bar and wanted to tell you a story and i just i was his captive audience because 
I I had gone to 30 Rock as a kid. I'd gotten tickets to see the old uh, Jeopardy show with Art Fleming. Wow. And Don Pardo was the voice. So I went in as a kid there and, and in the audience, and there was Don Pardo, like, announcing. And, and so, and knowing his history and his voice and his role with the early days of SNL and what have you, um, the fact that here, there's the man, and I have every right to go up and say hello. And more than that, he's embracing me to chat with me you know, on a regular basis. I'd see him almost every day I, I worked in the building. And uh, he was just super nice, just you know, a warm human being and a legend himself. And right. sort of like you mentioned, like Jay, how Jay Leno in, in Burbank would take the time. He took more, like you were kidding, more than the time to chat with you and hear about you and, and answer a question or, or tell you a story. He was just, and then he'd have to dip back into the studio to do at the time, he was working for Live at Five. He was the voice of Live at Five, but he was the first first voice at NBC that announced that President Kennedy had been shot. Wow. And you know, here he was, still there at that point, twenty years later, uh, chatting with little punk me, and uh, couldn't have been nicer. And it's so cool because again, I, I always just feel, um, you know, uh, you know, talking to younger folks and trying to support younger folks for either getting into this industry or, or whatever they want to do, it doesn't matter, but, you know, getting those stories from people that did it, I'm going to say my, you know, tear up, you know, my dad says there's no substitute for experience. And, you know, when Don Pardo is going to tell you a story or, you know, or Biff Henderson or any of these guys that work in the building are going to tell you, even the cat, even the crew guys, Oh my God, these are, these are like, the the Navy SEALs, you know, mm -hmm. these guys can can with with putting the shows together and all the stuff, the it's like a ballet and military with military precision to get the sets and the the, the audio uh. and the lights all done. And, and again, in such a small space, when they tell you stories, it's like I could sit there for. I, you know, I would just sit there for hours, you know, listening, like whatever anyone, anyone wanted to tell me a story, I'd listen. And, and, and again, I just, I'm so grateful that they, that they would tell me these stories because it really, it meant a lot to me. And again, if anyone, you know, whenever one asked me a question, I'm, I'm happy to try to, you know, whatever I can pass along, you know, cause that's how it works, you know. And I also have a memory one night, you know, Don Pardo was still then when I was there, 82, 83, the voice of SNL. Um, going to, if, if I didn't have a specific assignment at, a, at that time, at the start of the show, I I usually would be downstairs helping out, but then could filter my way up. Uh, remember looking through the announce booth and Robert Guillaume from Benson was the guest host that night. And here he had sort of like on a cue card, Guillaume phonetically spelled. Yeah. And I watched through like the, the window in the door into the announce booth. Don Pardo do his announcement that night and, you know, and Robert Guillaume. And I was like, oh, my gosh, he's got it like written out phonetically right. uh, on a big cardboard right in front of him to do it. And uh, I think the following week I reminded him of it. And he said, hey, anytime, you know, you're free. Just stand up here and watch. And, um, well, you know, something funny, but even you saying that and it's so funny. And I and I've and again, I've said this in the past. You don't realize what you can absorb or learn when you're physically there. So, for example, like when I read this intro to the show and, and for the listeners, uh, it's not one take. <laughs> it's a lot of takes. And some of the words I don't 
I, I don't actually do it phonetically. And I know, and I'll give a shout out to like Steve Kamer, who's, who does a lot of voiceover work for everything. I don't, you know, I don't do, I don't write it out phonetically, but, but you know, if, if someone wanted to get into voiceover work and see happen to be like a young kid, like you say, Oh, Don Pardo is writing it out phonetically or just, Oh, that's how it's done. You literally will learn something that, that some people may never even think that that's done that way ever. Absolutely. But say, well, this is how, this is how the big guys do it. This is what they do. And I know from working with talent uh, and, and doing retakes and, and blah, 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 you know, you, you, it's like, well, that's how they do it. So, uh, so that's okay if I don't do it correctly the first time. So absolutely. So all learning experience, just, just watching and learning. You, you, so you may not realize you're learning, but, but by watching you, 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 it, it all gets soaked in, you know? Um, I didn't know a lot at that age, but I did realize that, that observe and listen and you could learn a lot. Right. And, and speaking of Don, I'd mentioned uh, Desi Arnaz uh yeah with with a tie into don so tell us what that was about yeah david so again i mean i i'm one of four kids and i think you know i had a great mother but the tv was my babysitter and i was a little high strung so i think i was down in the basement watching a lot of tv so i watched a lot of i love lucy and you know oh the munsters and superman all these shows i mean they they were my babysitter um and so one night, I think it was the last time that Desi Arnaz ever appeared on, on a television show of, of this kind. It was 1983, and he was a guest on Letterman, Desi Arnaz, you know, Ricky Ricardo from I Love Lucy Days. And so I had a chance. I was not assigned in the studio for that particular part of the show, whether it was the first half hour or the second half hour. They kind of like broke your shift up from 530 to 6 or 6 to 6.30. Whenever it was, I was unassigned, so I was hanging out in the hallway. And when he went out on and he ended up singing a song, I ran up to the seventh floor and kind of went into the back of the audience to watch it. And then I came down when it was done and was back in the hallway for when he walked out of the studio doors. And I, I said something like, that was great, and I'm not shitting you here. And I'm sorry if I'm cursing, but he, he literally patted me on my shoulder and said, thank you, partner, which is kind of wow. what he would say to people on I Love Lucy. Literally said that. Thank you, partner. Wow. And I was just like awestruck. And then I wandered over to Don Pardo, who was in the hallway kind of watching what was going on. Again, announcing for the local TV show at 6B across the hall from Letterman 6A. And I was just like, oh, my God, I grew up watching him and whatever. And, he, and that's when he said, well, why don't you go over and introduce yourself? I said, well, I just said hello. No, no, no. And he said, no, you should. And then I noticed he was Desi Arnaz in his little his little dressing room was having trouble closing his his little he had a small suitcase but it was packed and he was having trouble closing it so i went over to i just agreed with don pardo and said i'm going over there and asked to help not to introduce myself and he got it closed but asked if i would carry it downstairs mm -hmm. so i'm like, yeah, oh, like oh my goodness God. uh yes sir <laughs> so i Man. was and and he literally had Marco with him, who was his arranger, who had made appearances on I Love Lucy and was affiliated with Desi Arnaz over the years. So he was there and had played the piano with the band when Desi performed a song, again, on Late Night with David Letterman. So we're walking down the hallway in the elevator. I'm just keeping my mouth shut, hearing them talk and whatever. Um, and I mentioned at one point, one of my favorite things of I Love Lucy was when he was not on, on stage, 
you could hear him laughing at what she was doing. And he said something like, oh, she was the best. She was so funny. Mm-hmm. The only thing I said, and then as we got outside, there was tons of paparazzi, you know, in the, in the lobby of 30 Rock. And we were heading toward like the skating rink entrance to get his limousine. And all he said was, just don't stop. Just don't stop. So he kind of signed autographs, took pictures. but And so I held his briefcase very, I don't know if he had bottles of liquor in there or what, but heavy, heavy, small briefcase in one hand. And I had my arm around his kind of waist on the other as we kind of made our way through the crowd to get out to to the limousine. And off he went. And I just thought, oh, my goodness, how awesome is that? And really, it was Don Pardo kind of like channeling my attention over toward where Desi's dressing room was that that got me to do that. And again, being a, a kid who grew up watching I Love Lucy and being a fan of television, to have had that close encounter with that kind of a legend, you know, is obviously a story I'll never forget. Right. And, and again, th- those stories, it's it, it, they're, you know, for those that that it means something, you know, again, there are folks that may, they, they don't really care. Yeah. They're, they're, they're in sure. IT, you know, they're, they're, they're doing, you know, something, <laughs> but for those folks that it means something. And again, there were a lot of those instances where, you know, you're meeting your, you're, you're meeting folks that, that truly, you know, and again, you know, not, I don't know how much he affected your life, but you know, you watching, I love Lucy, and and as you were growing up from a little boy and and you know laughing to those stories and and it just became a part of the of your the fabric of your life and then to see him in person and to to like interact with him like a like like he's real you know are are those moments that that and again it's so it's so people may say it's crazy but it's something so special in my opinion that it it's 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 a truly magical experience and even when i and i mentioned this once before when i i used to work the door for snl and christopher reeve came to the to the party and i was working the door so so here it is i'm standing there and christopher reeve walks in you know walks up and it's just like and he was my favorite you know the, that movie the, the you know it was like just shoot me in the head now mm-hmm. i like i don't you know, I, it's just one of those things and it sounds so silly, but it's like, I'm opening the door for Superman. And I actually later, when I worked for Charles Perez, produced something after he passed away, unfortunately, why not when he, when he was, before he passed, I did something and I did a, I recreated a scene from Superman with Charles Perez, who was a talk show host. And it was, oh, wow. and, I, yeah, and I dedicated it to Christopher Reeve. But it's like, and we shot it at the at the at the um, the Daily News building. So I I recreated the entire oh, wow, opening wow. of the thing where he walks past the globe. So it just meant a lot to me. And again, just think about it as from a little kid who literally shot on film. We recreated the open, and and I've done things that that he somehow affected me. So again, just being in the building, seeing you know these people. Um, it's just one of those memories that that you'll you'll have for the rest of your life. But it and and again, I wonder if they probably don't realize how how much they affected you or or folks like you. But but man, they they really made a difference in our lives. I mean, it just it sounds crazy, oh, yeah. but it really was very special. So that's just unbelievable. I, I agree. And, you know, like growing up as, you know, a kid with a TV as a, a television set as a babysitter. I was fascinated by television. And so here 
I got this incredible opportunity to work in television in New York City. And because of that incredibly fortunate break, meet someone like Desi Arnaz, who I used to see on my television, who got me interested in being in television. And 40 years later, I still work in television. I mean, yeah, I mean, I I definitely knew at that at that time, well, from the time I got the call to get the job, that, oh, my goodness, this is the luckiest break a kid could ever have. And I say a kid, I was only 20 years old. So, and then within months or whatever, to be meeting a Desi Arnaz and chatting with a Don Pardo amongst other people. Um, yeah, I, I sometimes just almost can't believe it actually happened, even though I lived through it. Looking back, I'm like, and I, I knew I was appreciating it at the time, but what a lucky son of a gun. And it's amazing because, you know, me growing up in New York, you know, I looked at, at you know, Chuck Scarborough and Sue Simmons and Al Roker and 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 those folks one is, you know, I grew up with them and then I, you know, became their assistant and I work with them. Mm -hmm. So it's like, oh, my God. But you there are some kids there. There's actually people, kid, little kids that grew up watching you on TV. They flip on the TV. They don't know you from anything. Oh, who's this guy? You're reporting. That's that's their life. They they know you as the guy when they're, you know, when they could be, you know, seven years old, or, you know watching you and then they're going to grow up and in their minds they are like, Oh, I remember Bob when I grew up, I saw Bob on TV and literally those young kids could potentially go into broadcasting because they saw you on TV and said, I remember he was very friendly and I really like what he did. And I, he inspired me to go into broadcasting or, or, or acting or whatever. And again, it's so cool that you're literally, having the cycle, you know, repeat itself. It's amazing. I mean, just, just to think that you're really part of that cycle is amazing. It, it blows my mind, David, that, uh, you know, there will be people who come up and people are so friendly and yeah, because you're in their homes, even though sometimes the stories we do are sad or, or upsetting that you, you try to, for the most part, be human and people will just come up and hug on you and love you. And I, I mean, not because of how I was treated when I was younger. I, it's just my natural reaction. But I love that. I love, mm. be, you know, during the pandemic, we couldn't hug as, and get as close to people as we wanted. But we have we had before and we have since. And and every now and then you'll give a hug to someone. And I've been here 26 years and they'll say, I watched you when I was a kid. And I'm like, I, that blows my mind. I'm like, how can you? You're probably 30. But then I'm like, OK, you were a kid when I started here or whatever. <laughs> right. So. It, right. It, it, it's it's mind blowing, but it, it is touching. And I love those moments. And like I said, people are physical and I'm physical, too. And big hugs and thank you so much. And, uh, you know, even if they're not interested in, in journalism or broadcasting or whatever, just to have that connection that, oh, that guy who I thought might be nice actually is nice. You know, that's right. that's what I love. Right. Yeah. And to see you again, to see you physically in person <laughs> and and um and the fact that you're, you know, kind to them in person, there's something because because I think of like McGee in New York, we've like McGee Hickey and Chris Cimino and and, uh, you know, I mean, there's a million local talent that have been around forever. Uh, Connie Collins, I'll give a shout out to Connie Collins. We we message okay. each other on Facebook. I mean, she's you know, these are like legend. These are legendary New York reporters that if anyone grew up in New York, these were our people. So I um, 
Cindy Shu, you know, all these people, I'll, you know, um, uh, uh, Marsha Kramer. I, I got to work with all these folks and I'll see them somewhere. And it's like, it's like, oh, my God, I, you know, like like I saw Marsha and Cindy at the at the Emmy Awards and, uh, you know, I didn't win. I was nominated, but I didn't win that time. But they were there. And and I, you know, I, I was like and it was so cool. And I think Cindy just got a show. And it was like it was like good for you. You know, you, like these are New York institutions. These are people that everyone in New York knows and they should be recognized and celebrated because we want to hear the stories from real New Yorkers. And, you know, maybe outside of the tri-state area, maybe people don't know who they are, but they're legends to me. And especially being in, in the New York market, you know, um, you know, you know, it's not a, not an easy market to get into. So they're they're really just just wonderful folks. And and again, for you and you've worked well, you worked in Washington for many, many years. Um, but the fact is, you you know, in the eyes of that whole area, you are their legend and someone well, I that's very go that special. Far, but I've been well, here but, a while. <laughs> yeah. If you Again, the fact that, that they see you and have grown up again they it's it's one of those weird things that they, they see you like when they first tune on the tv and they see you they don't even know again only until i got bigger do you sort of connect all the dots but they see you and they grow up with you you know and then you're the guy that says yeah yeah we grew up with him when we grew you know yeah we it's like the weirdest thing i i don't know it's and I'm, when i'm with my family and something like that happens david They'll, and I'll greet someone and they'll be like, oh, did you know them? I'm like, no, but they like if someone recognizes <laughs> oh, you, you don't want to be right. like, oh, well, who are you and what do you want? Right. No, right. I'm always I always act like I know them because they feel right. like they know me. And right. again, when I'm with other people, they're often like, I didn't know you knew that person. I'm like, well, I don't know that person, but they, right. they approached me in, in such a warm, friendly way. How else am I going to react? I do right. want to give a shout out to Chuck Scarborough because I know you know him well, but I grew up on Long Island watching the news. As a junior in high school in Manhasset, New York, I wrote him a letter mm. asking if I could come in sometime and shadow him. He wrote me back. I'm sure maybe his assistant wrote it. Was it actually, up. it was his. It was me. It was, well, it, I'll tell you, I actually wrote it. It would have been 1978. No, it, it would have been. But I'll, <laughs> well, I'll finish with well, telling. Keep it going. He and invited me to come in. I couldn't believe it when the, the letter, the business letter with the NBC, at that time it was a red and blue N. Yep. And and invited me to come in. I did. He had me in. I, I watched the news as an 11th grader uh, in the studio. And shout out to Chuck Scarborough, who was a legend back then in the late 70s. He'd only been there four years then. He's been there almost 50 years now. And couldn't have been nicer. Welcome to this, this teenage punk from Long Island into the studio to, to shadow him for the day. And, you know, again, I'll never forget that. His awfully generous gesture i will no it, it's amazing and it's funny because because talk about you know sort of paying it forward but for chuck to do that you know uh literally change like you're literally oh a broadcast absolutely because, you know that that probably affected you in in ways that chuck matter of fact i'm gonna get a message to chuck and, and, and let him know say thank Please. you um but Please. that's you know that is amazing and it's funny because chuck well, what what was funny is that Chuck would get mail and I would read all of the mail when I when I was his assistant. So I would read all the mail and right. Chuck would say, OK, David, we're going to we're going to respond to these letters. So and now, again, it, it 
you know, it kind of reminded me of like Lucy with the chocolate, you know, the chocolate. Like, <laughs> what do I know from taking no? I, I do not know shorthand. I don't know. I, I'm I don't know anything. So I'm sitting there with a with with a with a, a clipboard. And Chuck has the letter and he's sitting there, you know, probably with his feet up on the desk or, you know, you know, dear Bob, it has been a pleasure getting your thing. And I'm sitting there going, writing this oh, like I could barely read what I'm writing and I'm scribbling <laughs> it. Down, and I really thank you for doing this, you know, uh, Chuck. So I would scribble it. I swear to God, I don't even I don't like talk about. Like I don't know what the hell I was doing, but I would then go back and hopefully be, be able to make out what I wrote. And I would type it using the, you know, way, you know, it was a word processor. But then I would do it on the letter, on the stationery, give it to him. And I'd say, Chuck, here are the letters. And I was I mean, I'd hand it, everything it was a perfect stack and he would read it and he'd sign it. And I can't really think that I really ever that there was a mistake. But but you mentioned that he that he wrote having you come in. And he did. He actually did do that often in the sense that he he would say, oh, someone's coming in. But he would he would, you know, like and he was the only one. Unbelievable. Yeah. He sued. So nobody else did that. He would write all these folks and he, people would come in. And sometimes it's funny because people would come in. And it's funny because I'm like, who the hell is this? I don't even know who this is. But it was probably just people like you that asked to watch him. And again, for you to come in to see Chuck being legendary, and he's still on the air today. He's still there. Um, Unbelievable. Yeah, uh, it, it it it's. I'm still. I still pinch myself, and I, you know, the fact because he is. He's he's he he. I think he's been on the air probably one of the longest in New York. I, I think he may be the longest. I think he started in 1974, so he if he's coming up on 50 years for sure. I yeah. I will say I did when I got my job as a page. I sought him out stopped him in the hallway and told him that story that hey but if you see him again remind I will him get him yeah all we'll these many that years message. that was that was probably four years after i visited him now it's 40 years later and i'll again never forget that uh, uh awfully kind gesture on his part uh it really it's nice so again it just it just goes to show paying that, it that forward paying it forward is is so important and i i love that so um a couple other stories so you mentioned um joan rivers who had such a um you know tumultuous career and, and and a lot of a lot of stories with her um now apparently she didn't take a shot of tequila no she didn't no, no, so I let's did. we'll clarify that. No, that's, so why, why but, do you explain that and this that is just a, a stupid little aside but like you know when people say you know tell me something that involved hey did you ever meet joan rivers well actually she was she was uh, the guest host on s host on snl one night and after the show, the, the the players would go up to, you know, the producers. At that time, it was Dick Ebersol, But before and after, of course, it was uh, Lorne Michaels. But you'd go up to the, the producer's office. They'd kind of look at the show, see what's what, and then head out to the cast party. And the cast party would be at a bar or a club in New York. And often they would kind of preserve a spot for, you know, the, the, the people there from SNL because the rest was open to the public. This particular night... The vision I have is it's a bar and I'm there with other pages. I'm only 20 and primarily just a beer drinker, but everybody's getting shots of tequila. One of the older pages hands it to me, being the knucklehead, not knowing what the heck I'm doing. <laughs> I, I, I took a shot of tequila and it was like, for me, drinking turpentine. I'm like paint thinner. I'm like, oh my God, I didn't want to swallow it. So I ran 
through the revolving door of the bar out to the street. And just as I'm getting ready to spit it out on the street, I, I'm embarrassed to say that here's Joan Rivers walking in with, you know, all the VIPs. And I just, I kind of leaned left and let it rip. And I, I thought I would kill myself by swallowing this stuff. And I just remember spinning around and she like walked right, you know, through the revolving door and into the bar. And I thought, oh, that was not too, not too swift. <laughs> so wow. the first time I ever took a shot at tequila was fairly memorable. Wow. I mean, it really is. And and again, do you, um, for going to those SNL parties, were there, were there any other parties that, that you remember? Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. And explain, um, tell folks, yeah, tell us back, you know, we, we've talked about it, but, but explain to them how that works, like the party and going to the party and stuff. Yeah, so th there would always be, they called it a cast party, but the pages were also invited and the guests and, and you know, the, the VIPs who might have been there, friends of, of whoever was either on the show or part of the show, uh, you would uh, you would go to this this bar or club. And I remember being in a club. I don't think it was Studio 54, but looking down uh, at one point and the the stars of the show when I was there, 80, the 82, 83 season, they were Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo. And watching those two guys on the dance floor goofing around, like, you know, I think they were not trying to really dance well. I think they were goofing around. I'm like, oh my gosh, like there's Joe, like we all know him from what they did on TV, but here they were being themselves and letting loose on the dance floor, goofing around, standing there together with a bunch of people around them. And uh, it was just fun. It was just, it was again, another one of those pinch me things where like, hey, we're included in this group of people invited to go hang out and 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 the guest hosts would would show up you know most nights they would be there it was the first the year i was there was the first year that julia louis dreyfus was uh one of the players she and brad hall her husband he did the uh, weekend update that year but nobody knew who julia louis dreyfus was and i think gary kroger was the third new addition it was julia brad and and gary and uh she was hilarious and yet it was the very beginning of her really career in terms of widespread uh, notoriety and uh oh the, the, the cast parties uh was it, is it johnny winters is he one of the he's a musician right i remember he was a guest musical guest he, like very white hair i think it's if i'm not mistaken i'm not, I remember, I'm not sure but i'm not, not sure but but my uh, my brother and one of his best friends i had gotten them tickets and we were standing in the club when johnny winters walked by and uh i hadn't thought of this story in a while so that's why i'm doubting myself on who it was but it was definitely johnny winters and um uh my brother's friend was like oh my god he walked by and stephen wright was was oh. also had made an appearance on the show that night and walked by us into the cast party we had stopped at the bar to get a, a drink before going inside uh into the place and this friend of my brother's was just like oh my god i can't believe i'm like saying hello to these guys as they're walking by me so it was that kind of thing it was right. electric saturday right. nights what was so the show started in it was like i think maybe season eight now 40 something it was if those nights were electric not only at 30 rock but when you would go after the show uh to, to celebrate ideally another great performance by everybody uh those were fun nights did you do you remember those did you oh go yeah to cast parties? oh absolutely yeah i well because i had the page desk i was i was the i was the key page so i was responsible for getting everybody from the show into the limos to the parties. And oh, wow. then, and again, it was, it's, um, it's, 
it's not too difficult when, when you say to him, hey you want to go to a cast party and have a limousine waiting outside <laughs> it's very very funny this but yeah we would i would go to all the cast parties and 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 again it was so weird because you would go to these parties and it was like like you mentioned uh, uh Stephen Wright who who's a fellow Emersonian some very and I went ah, there you go. So he's very, but you know you, you you'd be at these parties and you'd be like oh look there goes Stephen Wright or <laughs> there goes like you're in a room and it's one of those things where anyone could walk by you like you could be i mean Mick Jagger could be sitting next to you or and you're, mm-hmm. you're and and it was funny because I did take um I I often took many people to the cast parties and some people I didn't even know, you know, or I just met or or friends, whatever. But I did get a kick out of bringing them to the parties and they would go to the bar and I and like Alec Baldwin would be there. And, mm. and you know, um, this friend of mine, Carrie, you know, she like she was she was very excited that he, you know, and she's taking, you know, take actually she was taking pictures before we had the the, the selfies or Bones. iPhone. Yeah, yeah. But I remember her taking pictures and I did get a kick out of letting letting them, you know, go oh my god did you see this because that you know because because then they had stories to tell their you know family and friends for the next 30 years oh yeah and so it was go go i would say going to the cast party one night i was with a few other pages and we were leaving the the sixth avenue side of of 30 rock going to get into a cab and tim kazarinski who was Mm. a guest player back in the day so if you were a fan of snl back in the uh, early 80s you would know who tim kazarinski is he jumped in the cab with us to go to the cast party um right yeah just a down-to-earth you know total cool guy you know and and I, i'm assuming he knew we were pages we were at that point i think back in our street clothes but uh you know and he jumped in with us and um yeah those were fun nights and everybody wanted to get there yeah and again you know eddie murphy i mean eddie murphy you know he went through the moon when he was on snl but a lot of these folks were just getting started so they weren't like huge stars but when you look back at it, you know, to see Eddie Murphy or or Piscopo, um, oh. they were, you know, like when you look back on it, everybody was just young kids, you know, um, young, you know, nobody, you know, um, not nobody's. Actually, I'm going to I'm going to mention this one story that my friend Nancy Biskupic. So, Nancy, if you're listening, this one's for you. So Nancy told me a story when she used to work SNL and she'd have to. Um, she was working, I guess, the green room that overlooked the studio up on nine. There was like a room, I guess. It, yeah, it was the green room and there was a window. So she said there was a guy that would constantly be hanging around mini. There was mini control was also in that area. I don't know if mini control was w- when you were there, but mini control. Remember. Yeah, mini controls where we used to bring it where we ended ended the tours. But but there was a guy that would constantly like hang around like the green room. And, and Nancy would say you know, excuse me, um, you know, do you, who are you? Do you work here? Whatever. And he would say, yeah, yeah, I, I, I work here now. I work here. And she was like, okay, no problem. And like the next week he would always be hanging around. And she was like, she was like, excuse me again. Who are you? Like, no, no, I work here. And she really didn't know who he was. So she literally said, I'm going to ask him like what his name is. So she literally asked this guy and she got his name and she told me that that she still has the piece of paper where she wrote the name of this guy on the paper because so she would remember who it was, and it was David Spade. <laughs> oh my goodness! 
So, <laughs> so literally, David Spade. Like, who's harassing me here? Yeah. Oh, wow. Like again, and 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 his uh. his fly on the wall podcast where he talks about being. He's like, I don't know what the hell I was doing, and I wanted to be on air, and I'm a writer, and I wanted to become famous, and this and that. So he was just like a page trying to break through, and here it is. Nancy didn't even know who the hell he was, and and he didn't even know he was trying to. You know, he probably because remember, you know, and I remember I used to, I used to go walk around the building and and try to find a, a place of calm because it was a little overwhelming sometime. So maybe during the show, maybe on the eighth floor, you know, maybe he went upstairs just to sort of like mm. just mentally take a break, but he did it so often. And she would kept on like, who are you? And then it turns out it was him. And she, and she still has the paper to this day. She said, she's that somewhere. Is, so that is so cool. I, I have a slight thing. I don't know if this is uh, appropriate, but I'll, I'll say it anyway, but um when when I was a page and every now and then you'd have the, you know, the, the position outside, uh, you know, either the ninth floor, or the eighth floor studio, there would be this strange looking guy walking around and he had with him what looked like, like a tube. It was, you know, it's implanted in my brain, like gray velvet or 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 not felt, but it was a material, a tube looked like something you would collapse a pool cue into. And he would walk around and walk around. And I just thought he seemed odd and what have you. And it, by the second or third week, one of the other pages told me he was the cocaine supplier. Oh, really? Really? Now, this was back in the early 80s. <laughs> wow. And, okay. and he had carte blanche. Like nobody wore lanyards and identified themselves. You know, it was like the like a, a field pass at a football game. You know, they just people walked around and you knew who was who. Oh, here's like a if you knew David Spade, there's a writer or there's one of the performers and whatever. This guy just looked off but he nobody ever stopped him and it turned out that's what he was there doing wow that's so funny because because yeah that it is fun and again i always said i was like i was uncle david i i i treated like my house i'm like there's no drugs there's no horsing around i don't want anything going to happen here so um but <laughs> Sorry, i guess uncle I was, david yeah i was at a i was at a different time um and it was funny because because joe detulio uh which again his his thing went forever but he never got a chance to talk about the parties. And he said that um, that uh, that people used to go after the cast party, they would go back to his apartment for a small party. And then he said that some of the talent would then go to his apartment. And then it got so big, they had to like find another place to wow. go, like an after after party. So so I said, I said, well, you know, maybe we would have him back and we'll talk about like no, because we talk about the sets and everything, but I said maybe we'll come back and just talk about no sets and but tell us about the parties and all the scandalous things that you did. Um, which again is just absolutely so funny. Um, absolutely. okay, so we'll we'll do the um the, some of the lightning round. We have a couple of questions, question a couple of things left. Um, so quickly tell me about um, and again, I'm uh, I say I'm a magician. I went to magic camp, uh the same magic camp that David Blaine went to, and I wow. I, I became friendly with David Blaine. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm, that's very magic. cool. Yeah. I saw, I saw Doug Henning when I was little, I saw D uh, David Copperfield. I even went to, I remember going to a convention and I'm, and I was probably again, again, I'm talk about paying it forward, but I was probably 10 and I'm walking through the Browns hotel in upstate New York and I'm walking up thing. And all of a sudden I see somebody, I was like, Oh my God. And it was David Copperfield. And I ran and got my friend. I'm like, there's David Copperfield. Like we ran back. And I literally sat with David Copperfield and he made us balloon animals. And I oh have, yeah, I have photos of me, you know, doing, having him balloon animals. And, and later I've made nine, 
million balloon animals for kids. <laughs> wow. And and saw David Copperfield on in Broadway, saw Doug Henning on thing, and and I still I'm not very and I, I'm not very good, but I could I could unicycle, I could juggle, oh, wow. I could do magic, you know, not very good at any of it, but but uh, in any that case, it takes a talent you, to ride a unicycle you know, and, and juggle. My goodness. Yeah, the, the unicycle actually, the unicycle is pretty difficult. But and I taught my I taught myself by going 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 on crutches. I literally had crutches. Oh wow! And I just literally just went inch by inch. Look at the balance going. Just to get the balance, and then and then I can do it. So yeah, so you know that that was insane. So so you you saw Doug Henning do something, and what was that? What was that deal? He was. He was doing a, one of his show, a magic show for NBC at the Ed Sullivan Theater before it had Letterman or Colbert. It was just the Ed Sullivan Theater. So, oh yeah, the, the oh, so I may have said the Doug Henning show was was on Broadway. So that's well then. So they may, and so maybe they record. They it was definitely for television. Oh, but it was television. being done oh, okay. there. So maybe it was. Okay. So it was, oh no, it was definitely being uh, recorded for NBC. Okay. And I had another page, and I were kind of in the lobby. After the everybody, the audience got in and the show was starting, we were just kind of pseudo security in the front lobby uh, of the Ed Sullivan Theater. And some crazy guy kind of wearing a trench coat, medium build, kind of looking a little silly. We couldn't understand what and we're trying to tell him, like, look, the show and boom, he knocked her over, oh. ran into the studio. My first thing was to help her up. I believe it was Kim Vermillion. I helped her get up and then. I ran in after him, you know, he went down an aisle, was trying to jump up on the stage and a couple of the other pages and whatever they had, I don't know if they were security or stage hands or audience members helped to pull this guy down and we ushered him out and called the cops. But it was just, it was one of those things that happened in a second. And, you know, it was, it, I, I don't know, honestly, whether they were in the middle of something or they were changing sets to like, you know, do the next segment for the for the show but he certainly tried to interrupt the uh the uh broadcast and had knocked over one of the pages trying to get in and did wow. get in well and it's funny because it's true you know the it's not I, and again i'm like so super not paranoid but i'm i'm very aware and and it really is very easy you know you're going to a show it you could be on the top you know, if you go to see Fallon, you know, whatever you, you could, there's really nothing stopping you from just running down the stairs to the set. I mean, there's, there's, no. there's no big heavy guy, you know, guys just standing there. So it is a little bit weird because you're pretty much, you know, I mean, luckily they do use the, the scanners, uh, the metal detectors, but you know, it's, it's a live they didn't thing, then. right? They didn't, oh, that's true, did, right back then. then. Yeah. Yeah. And, now and they, and they didn't have security. Now I think they probably have security there was an NBC security over at 30 Rock. Like I was saying, the guy who helped me get yeah, the, right. the intruder off. But it's something like that. There, it was just two pages there right. you know, between the street and the studio. Right. Kind of crazy. Yeah, it's a little, it's weird. And it's funny because now that I think about it, even when even when the pages were working in the inside of the door, I mean, it's true. I, I do remember that there was security between Live at Five and, and Letterman, you know, in the hallway, there was always yes. somebody there. And actually, it's funny. I remember the security desk was, was I think, on 7 on the corner when you got out of the elevator right on the corner was the security office i don't know where it oh, was oh wow when you if i don't remember there, yeah i don't there. remember and, and again me being so nosy and I, I loved all those guys i mean so i would always but you know you saw all the monitors so i would you know poke my head in ah, and, and just see okay. you, know, you, you want to sort of see what's going on but um, but yeah that no so that's 
and again, thank God that no nothing, um, you know, horrible. Um, it didn't. No, he didn't get on the stage, but he was in the process. Yeah. So now another thing, and, and I know that when I was a page, I got to work the we had some booths at Madison Square Garden. We had the sky booths and mm -hmm. I loved doing it. And I, I would work. I don't know if it, I forget if it was like the hockey games or 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 band. You were lucky. Stuff. You know, but but it was cool because I like working it because there was food. They had the whole buffet <laughs> of food and they had alcohol and drinks, you know, in there. So, again, you, you'd put your uniform on, you'd open the, the, the thing and people would come in and you'd literally be sitting watching Madison Square Garden in this God knows, you know, again, 21 years old. And I'm sitting in this God knows how much it costs to 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 be in that booth. But I'm in there watching these things just like the people that paid a zillion dollars for. So you had a, an experience where you got to see the circus. Is that yeah, well, correct? Is that, I don't know, is that right? Oh, it's so exciting, David. <laughs> problem was, I was the youngest page by like four years and, you know, junior for, even though I was a page for a year and a month, um, I was still, I think maybe more because of age and less because of seniority after a while, but I didn't get to go to the Knicks games or the Rangers games. I got... I did go to a Rush concert. So oh, that was the, wow. the coolest That's thing. I, cool. So I, I got to a Rush concert, but I also, I, I had to cover the circus a few times. And this, and we didn't have a buffet. It was basically uh, pretzels and potato chips and, and sodas. Water wasn't such a big thing then. So probably, you know, it was Cokes and, and ginger ale. And it was in in the, the booth that NBC owned, you know, I'm sure right. they leased it or whatever, but in the, right. you know, the VIP booth there at Madison Square Garden, this grandfather came in with a couple of, of kids. There were a few other people in there, but he was super nice. And, I, you know, you'd make sure they had binoculars if they needed them and anything you could do. You were kind of like, you know, a little host in, in right. the booth, in, in, in the, um, the box there. And uh, as, as he was leaving with the kids, he, and not that I was ever going to be able to do that, but he, he gave me his business card. And he said, hey, if you're ever in Puerto Rico, look me up. You've been really nice. And so I said, thank you, thank you. And he walked out and I looked at the card. It was the chairman of Bacardi Rums, who was wow. there with his grandkids, who was obviously, you know, a client of NBC or something. And, you know, NBC hooked him up when he was in New York to take the grandkids to see the circus. And I was his host for the day. But and I'm curious about everyone, but I wasn't going to be nosy and say, and who are you, sir? And what are you? you know? But right. I found out when he handed me his business card at the end of the night. Wow. And again, it, it's 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 amazing how much how much excitement was packed into such a short oh. uh, year. Was it a year or a year and a half? Uh, Thirteen months. Thirteen months. Yeah, June of eighty two to July of eighty three. Yeah. Wow. But but to be in those booths and again, you know, the, we were just tasked to just work wh whoever you know whatever we had to do. But again, how cool is it? And 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 it, and and again for the listeners, you know that that booth was owned by N or leased by NBC. So they wanted, you know, when when they were doing deals, like they, for all as we know, they were doing a, a deal with Bacardi, you know, sure. and um, and for they commercials have, during a sporting event or something. And hey, right, they Bacardi may have spent you know a million dollars on commercials, and then and then Bob Wright was like, oh, hey, the circus is coming town. Would you like to bring your children to the circus? here's tickets for our booth. So they were giving out these, these tickets to, you know, um, you know, just a sort of schmooze, schmoozing tickets, you know? Yeah. So yeah, it, it was, was so cool. Tinker when I was there. Yeah. <laughs> Grant I mean, Tinker oh, was Grant the president Tinker, of right, NBC. Grant, Grant, right. Wow. <laughs> but right. Right. Yeah. So it, so, yeah. it just, it again, 
I wouldn't trade it for the world. I mean, it was so cool that you were able to 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 do that. And and actually, and I hate to say, did you ever go to Puerto Rico to to? Uh, I have been there, but follow- I never followed it up many many years later. So never in a position to go and uh, knock on the the corporate door of uh, Bacardi Rums. I did not. Wow, did and not. it's funny when I I I worked at Apple for a short while, and I worked with some guy again good experience whole thing when he was done he handed me his card and it was the brewmaster from um uh brooklyn lager from brooklyn oh, brewery wow. and actually that was my favorite beer it still is um so i was like it was like so cool like oh, it was like he, he, i was like i'm gonna go and, and i've been i've actually been to the brewery in brooklyn um and i've asked for him i'm like oh is he here you know so and i think i believe he's still <laughs> the brewmaster the brewmaster yeah so it was so odd but but again you know again I got it. He, I guess I did such a good job that he was compelled to give me his card. Give you the card. As did you. And, and again, a shout out to all the pages who, who they really, again, it's not an easy job, but, but for those that took it seriously and just, just tried to provide the best customer service we could, because that's, that's what we, you know, our job, we were the face of guest relations. We were the face of NBC and we you just were. tried to do the best, the best that we could. You were like, and especially like if you're in the booth down in the, the lobby every now and then, if I'm in New York, yeah. I, 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 I always, ever, when, if ever I'm in midtown Manhattan, I have to walk through. Um, and the old, when I was there, they'd kind of push the booths off to the side. And then yeah. now there's the booth in the middle again. You were, you, it, it, for some people, you were the face of NBC. And when I was there, they had stopped doing the tour. They were getting ready to start it up again. Um, but I ended up leaving the page office before they actually started the tour i was there when they had the first nbc store a real small Mm -hmm. store right there just off like as part of the main lobby there opposite from the elevator bank just a little shoehorn of a of a of a space where they had the first store which opened up i think that was in 1982 83 uh when i was there um but they didn't have the tour. So every now and then someone would come in a family, you know, a couple of couples from out of town and ask, do you do tours and no, and we get chatting and they're so nice. And I would say, look, you come back at like six 30 when I'm off my shift, I'll show you around because I like you, uh, right. I love the place. I was fascinated <laughs> by right. the NBC studios and I would do that. And one time I think his name was Peter Tyndall, who was at the time the head of guest relations came out when we were in the little office there on the mezzanine level, threw a, a letter on my desk and said, hey, I opened this up, didn't realize it was for you, but very nice. And it was, uh, it, uh, the guy was like the president of a bank in Texas somewhere and said, hey, Bob, the page showed you know us such kindness and took us around and blah, 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 blah. And I remember the boss saying, you know, that's great stuff. That's what you want to do. And I would have done it naturally, but then when you're, you get the, you know, encouragement and reinforced, you know, appreciation, it's like, yeah, I mean, being kind, especially when you're like an ambassador for such a big company was a, right. was a big thing. Right. I, I, like I said, I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, I, I could sit, you know, Friday night, I'd go and talk to, I, I would, yeah, I would do anything I could. And, and it's true. We, we would bring folks into the building, you know, there's nothing better than bringing someone who again, appreciates it, you know, like, Oh my God, we're going into the building and showing them things that that, that never in a million years would they ever see. And and again, I'd like to think, you know, we, you know, you and I and all the folks like us, you know, change these people li- people's lives 
They're like, oh, my God, I came to New York. And that's the thing. People come from out of all over the world. You know, for us going into 30 Rock and, and having, you know, uh, access to all these places, it's very easy. But, you know, when you have somebody that that travels from around the world or a different state comes to New York, sees 30 Rock, maybe they were coming in for the Christmas tree, you know, celebration and then they're walking through and to show them something, to give them an experience, give me tears, to give them an experience that literally will change their life. There's nothing like it. Because it's, you know, something, it takes nothing for me to do that. It's very simple. I, I could, you know, to do what we did, it's very easy, but they will go back and they will remember that story for the rest of their lives saying this guy, Bob, this guy, David, or any of the pages that, that, that I know do these types of things. It really is magical. And what it cost us, nothing. And, and, oh, and, and there, there, there were times, David, the people would come in and I don't know if you, it wasn't frowned upon. I don't know if they still do it today, but people would come in and just, either the vibe you got from them or whatever, yeah. I would say, Hey, stick around. And I would walk them up and, and I'd say, look, are you okay standing for the next hour? Because you can watch the, you know, late night with David Letterman, there are no more seats, but I, you know, Oh, could you get us? And you would, you know, wave to the, the security at the elevator bank, take them up, get them inside. And uh, they could watch the show without tickets, spur of the moment, not even thinking it was possible. And I, that was the kick I got too. Right. It's kind of power, but it's it's like this beautiful power to be able to to share something like that with someone just because you could. Right. And it's funny. I I, I told this. I think I told the story once, but, you know, I grew up on, in New York and I think we had talk, talked about WLIR, which mm -hmm. uh, a yes. huge WLIR fan. And I grew up, you know, and th that's the number like LIR is my thing. And I listened to, you know, Dennis McNamara and Malibu Sue who were two DJs, you know, on the air. Dennis was the program director and anyone check out new wave dare to be different. The movie it blow your, blow your mind. But, uh, so one, so I grew up with them and I became friend. I became friendly. Cause I'd, I, then I got sort of got a job there. It was a long story, but I'm in the lobby one day probably is the key page for SNL. And who, who do I see now again for the listeners? I don't think we have talked about this. If you get, um, tickets, uh, when you're in main hall, the left's the depending on where you're looking, but if you're looking, let's say from the elevator bank towards where the store was, the left side was general public and the right side was the VIP. So the VIP mm -hmm. line, everyone had to sort of line up for the two different booths. And there was a little box that Chris Sulger would put together. I believe he did it uh, or put the boxes together, but everybody's name would be written on tickets, but there'd be a huge line and, you know, they would wait and blah, blah, blah. And then they would have to go upstairs but I remember I was in the lobby and I see Dennis McNamara and Malibu Sue. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, you know, short of me, you know, giving me my kidney. I was like, you ain't waiting online. So I literally I think I just walked right up to the booth and said, could I have uh, Dennis McNamara's tickets? And maybe it was Sue was with him. I literally they gave me the tickets right out of the thing, skipped the entire line. And then I'm like, and now you're coming with me. And we wound up, you know, cut just I had my I guess my keys. I took them right upstairs and I brought them probably to the green room um, to, you know, and then I and then I said, do you want any beverage, you know, food, beverages? And I remember getting them some soda and food, maybe from craft services. But it was like that was my repayment for literally changing my life and, and, the, and everything about my life because of what they did. And in my little way, I'm going to pay it forward. And that to me was so I was so 
thrilled that I could do that, you know, uh, and to have that power to be able to right, do that as, right, a, exactly. as a lowly page, I'm a lowly page, you could grab the tickets, walk through security, plant them in the studio. Right. Right. And, and nobody cared. Nobody, you know, nobody, you know, I guess, cause I was the key page. What I, what I said went. So I was the boss at that moment, <laughs> you know, it is. A, so you got to love that. And, I'm, and, oh, and, man. and I love Sue. I love Sue and Dennis and, God bless them. Okay, so we're gonna we'll wrap this up. So we have two more things, uh, two or three more things. So we'll 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 quickly talk about Howard Stern, Don Imus, drinking, uh, Scott, well, not or not not not, not Howard. drinking. Oh, Howard! Oh, Howard wasn't involved with this. Or well, it well it's, yeah, explain what, this. It was thing. Imus. Yeah, yeah, it was it was Imus. Like sitting in that information booth, both both Howard Stern and and Don Imus were on WNBC, which is now the Fan in New York, but it was WNBC. And they would come and go and what have you. So my two different stories on them were there were um, one day a guy was walking in with a case of Dewar's white label scotch and went to security, checked in, went upstairs. And I asked, what was that all about? And they're like, oh, that's going to Don Imus's studio. And um, my the only interaction I ever had with Howard Stern was on the seventh floor in the commissary, which is kind of like the cafeteria there at NBC. And he was behind me online and couldn't have been nicer. He like I, I looked up and he wasn't at that point, I don't think, as legendary as he became afterward. But in 1982, uh, early 83, he was, you know, on the radio and famous. But um, and he was just so soft spoken and so nice. So he was not involved in the drinking on the job at uh, all. It was that was that was Don Imus. So but, who sent but, who's who sent the out did someone who sent the I think, or he just ordered Don Imus? I think ordered. he ordered it for himself or oh, had okay. his assistant, you know, his David Katz assistant. Hey Dave, <laughs> order me my uh Scott. Oh that's funny. There it came. So oh, I think funny. that was not a gift. That was I think uh something he bought for himself and had it brought hand delivered right into his studio. Oh wow, okay. That's fine. And Howard Stern was just this friendly, soft spot for for what he was on the radio in person at that time. He was just so soft spoken and so nice. Wow. Actually, you touched on the commissary, and um Johnny Carson would always talk about the commissary in <laughs> Burbank. And and when I get well, when I went out to Burbank, of course, I had to visit the commissary just because sure. you mentioned it. But but in, in New York, we we did call it the commissary as well, actually. Oh we? yeah. Yeah, I did. And, uh, seventh floor commissary. Yeah. So explain again. Just just tell folks what what that was, well, what it was like. It was it was like the lunchroom at NBC. And I'm not a picky foodie eater guy. I ate most of my meals there. Yeah, you could have gone out on the street and grabbed something, but it was great. It was like a it was a cafeteria style cafe, nothing fancy at all, but on the seventh floor and hot, cold meals, whatever. You get a tray, you pick up stuff and plenty of places to sit down. So if if you had just a small break and you wanted kind of a warm cooked meal and not something out of the uh, snack machine, out of the vending machine, you'd go up there. And every now and then you'd see someone who, you know, would uh, make you give a double take. Oh, there's so-and-so. There's right. Tom Brokaw walking through, you know, someone right. grabbing a coffee or whatever. And it was convenient and safe and quick and inexpensive. And it was great. And it, yeah, it was the seventh floor commissary right there at 30 Rock. That's funny. And I, I remember, um, I used to work the five and six newscasts and I, you know, coming at nine in the morning, you know, then we'd work the day, work the five and six newscasts. But I remember at seven o'clock I would go to the commissary and, and I, it's funny if anyone's listening and, and, and again, uh, Grossman or Hamel, there was a chef, you know, behind the, behind mm -hmm. the, you know, that would serve you. I would get two 
uh, fried chicken sandwiches, which I guess this was way before Chick-fil-A, <laughs> but they were really, really good. I'd get two of them and I'd have dinner in the commissary. And then the sickness that I have, I, I would then do my second shift at NBC because everyone would go home. But I was so enamored by being there. I would do the whole day. I'd have my dinner and then I would go back to my desk and I would do a million different things from seven to midnight or one in the morning, Man. as much as I can do, I'd go home back to Long Island at two in the morning, whatever it was. And sort of repeat the process. But I, but I remember specifically at seven o'clock cause I would finish everything I was doing. I was, let me just chill out after we did the, the news is done. And then let me go back to my desk. Um, and I guess at that point, if it, if, if it was Chuck or whatever, you know, whatever stuff I had to do, or if I was doing promotion, I would then sit. And that was sort of my secret. I wasn't so great at writing and doing all this stuff, but you know, if you start at seven and if you start at seven at night when nobody's there and work till midnight and really, you know, write it 17 times. Well, yeah, when you come in the morning and submit those scripts, they're really good <laughs> because I spent 12 hours the night before doing them. But you know, I did what you had to do. You know, some people were very good at just getting it knocked out. But I would just spend the extra time to make sure it was perfect and or I or I could do it. You know? But it shows the love and dedication. I think not everybody felt that way, but clearly you did and I did. The 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 love, the, the the gratefulness to be working there. I mean, you're like, oh my gosh, I I I was I never took it for granted. There were some nights, because I too lived on Long Island, that um nights when we would do SNL, I would go back to 30 Rock. They had a a, a couch in the page locker room. Yeah, I would crash on the couch, take a shower. I, I would think ahead and bring clean clothes because one of the jobs and one of the jobs I had to do on Sundays, Sunday mornings was there was, I don't know if they were there when you were there, David, the viewing rooms up on the ninth floor. And it would be where people would come in. They'd have to log in. So your job was to sit there to make sure these people signed themselves in half the time they didn't come. But it was the advertisers would hire people to come in and watch the shows that were going to be running like really? two nights ahead. Uh -oh. And so if there's a plane crash, Delta Airlines doesn't want to have a commercial running during that particular show or movie. Or if there was a beer commercial and and someone had a car accident due to alcohol or something, you know what I mean? Looking for those kinds of conflicts between the content of the programming and the advertising. Wow. That was one of the pages jobs at the time I was there was it was the, they were called the ninth floor viewing rooms there were two of them and there'd be shows going on in each one and you signed these people in and they'd come in and do that and because i would have that at 9 a.m on sunday morning and work snl and go to the cast parties i would literally crash on the couch in the page locker room on saturday nights throughout that whole that whole season and uh you know was grateful to do it had wow. no problem with the short turnaround and sleeping the night on a couch uh you know at work Wow. Well, two things. So one is I didn't know that uh, I didn't know about that advertiser part of it. That, that's so interesting. Oh, yeah. And it makes perfect sense. Um, that's very interesting. So that that's fascinating to me. Um, that's really cool. And then as far as, yeah, um, sleeping, we had, you know, the we had showers and couches. So basically people would 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 go to the, do what you said and then you'd mm -hmm. wake up on Sunday morning and it was like a, a minefield because pages would be strewn all over the floors <laughs> and you tiptoe because wow. people had to go to their to their, uh, you know, to, to get dressed or get ready to give a tour the next morning. So we would sleep there a lot. And I personally 
must have I slept in that lounge on the couch a hundred times, if not a thousand. I mean, I slept there all the I time. I was always alone though. That's interesting. I never oh it was really? always no. well, there were times when I was alone. Yeah, many, many, many times I was alone, but but there was many times when people when it was like a Saturday night, a lot of folks did crash. Um, and then we use the shower. And and you know, mainly because I'm probably a knucklehead and didn't have a watch with an alarm, I would call the switchboard and ask the operator to call me at a certain whatever hour it was oh. to call the phone in the locker room to wake me up. <laughs> really? So anyhow, yeah. Wow. And yeah, they that's would. Funny. And they, that's funny. I, I'm I'm trying to think. Yeah, I didn't know. That's interesting. That that I never utilized either. I don't know. Maybe I don't. Maybe yeah. That's interesting. I don't know. But I guess. Oh I guess, yeah. I guess if I slept over, if there was tours to be given, I, I guess we would have been woken up. But if there was, if I was by myself, it was probably, I could just wake up and do whatever I wanted. You know, I didn't think I was going to. Oh, I needed an alarm. Oh, it's so funny. Okay. Uh, and then uh, let's talk about celebrities and how they conduct themselves in public. Uh, Bob, Hose, Bob Hope versus uh, Sylvester Stallone. What was that about? Well, it was an early, uh, you know, uh, vantage point to, to see how famous people are by the, the, these were one of them was sitting in the booth in the, in the lobby of 30 rock. And the first one was Bob Hope. He had been on the today show live in, in New York city. <clears throat> and as he's leaving, you know, the, the elevator bank walking through be the, between the two uh, security tables there and walking past people who were lining up to get letterman tickets for that day or whatever, there were a bunch of people kind of around the corner and, and in the hallway and he literally, I mean, it sounds cliche, but he had a hand in a pocket and he was whistling and just walking all by himself. And everyone's like, Bob Hope, Bob Hope. And he didn't stop signed autographs or whatever, but he just waved and on his own. And he was probably in his late 70s, maybe early 80s at the time, walked out to his waiting limousine out on uh, 50th Street. And either I forget if it was before or after that, but not long before or after, Sylvester Stallone was a guest and he was on the sixth floor. And at that time, I was on the sixth floor. And just happened to be hanging out or getting ready to go into the studio or whatever, working my job. And here he came down the hallway and had like five guys around him, like kind of creating a permit uh, perimeter around him and like, you know, pushing people, not physically, but kind of like, hey, out of the way, Sylvester Stallone's here and he's coming down the hallway. And I'm sure he's not that way now and probably wasn't that way all the time. But for my young self, seeing how these two different famous people handled themselves, I'm like, I was impressed with Bob Hope, frankly, and thought, wow. Right. Here's the one of the most famous people in the world, and he's just taking his chances, you know, striding out, strolling out of the building on his own, what have you. And Stallone needed a whole big entourage to to make his appearance on on the sh whatever show he was there for. Right. Yeah, that is it interesting. Stuck with me. Yeah. No, I I totally get that. It's it's um, we would see that often. It's true. You you would see. Sometimes they had like I think Eddie Murphy had a big entourage, um, if I remember, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, but there were some folks that had like these big groups of folks. I remember it was so funny. I remember um, before Seinfeld hit it big, he did a in New York. There was a um, it was it was like the town hall building. I forget where it was. It was like a very small venue and no one really knew who he was. And I remember Carl Killingsworth, who was the head of press and publicity, had invited me to go and I was there and I remember again, I'm like, I'm going to go backstage or something, but they were like, mm. they were like, no, no. And I remember saying, I'm like, nobody knows who he is. You know, it was a little sign. It was a little Seinfeld, but I was like, nobody knows who this guy <laughs> is. I'm like, you know, 
But I was like, <laughs> nobody knew who he was. And and I'm like, really? You know, and it was really annoying because and I, I couldn't get back there. But then you have other folks. And again, the list, you know, I'm sure there's tons of folks. No entourage. Very cool. And then again, even Leno. Leno walks into the building by himself, you know, wearing his jeans attire. Mm-hmm. You would never know. I can like, picture to- that. Yeah, just he's wearing his jeans, T-shirt and sneakers, walks in, nothing. And uh, and he'll stop and chat with you. Like, because, again, some of them would would walk in and they would just, you know, have the blinders on and wouldn't want to talk to you or make eye contact. Leno, he, he you know, hey, yeah, what, are you, so what, cool. you, what you could do, you know, talk to me. You know, he would <laughs> he would talk to you, do anything you wanted. So it was you do magic and voices. I know that, that actually I think that was the first time in my life I've ever done that voice. <laughs> so that was, was very good. good. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so God bless him. It's true. It, 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 you know, um, many talent, you know, some of them, you know, um, have no problem chatting with folks, Let you know, and 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 just being so cool and, and you know, approachable. And it's true. Others, you know, make it more difficult. And I think I remember once I saw I saw the guy from the. Um, the guy from uh, Natalie Portman, The Professional, uh, the, the uh, there's a movie, The Professional with Natalie Portman. She was like, I don't think I saw it. Oh. Yeah. So um, and his he, French actor, very famous or he was a French actor. But the, the movie was that was really, I think, her first movie. And I remember I saw him and he he wanted to he was like, you know, signaling to sort of, you know, like no no no, I, I, people are going to recognize me, and 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 it's going to be, be. And I'm saying nobody knows who you are. Nobody recognizes you. What do you, you know? So it was kind of funny that that yeah, it, it some people. Well, think, and as a, well, as a page, you get to see that on a daily basis. You know, you're yeah. getting all this information in, and it's a it's a window on the world of, you know, right. working stiffs like ourselves, celebrities, you know, right. personalities, and and you can kind of as a young impressionable person as you were at the time too, kind of say, okay, I like that. And I, I don't right. necessarily like that. And, you know, right. maybe model yourself one way and not the other. Right. Right. Exactly. And again, just from <laughs> observing and being there and just suck, you know, taking it all in helps develop. And, and, and that, whether we, whether we know it or not, that helped develop us. And just all these little things that we saw, say, I want to be like this and I don't want to be like this. And, you know, and it's from watching, Absolutely. you know, um, and especially being in the entertainment business or in the media business, um, that's how those people behave. You know, if I was a, a baseball player or, or, or I was, I was a, musician. Sports, a musician, maybe, you know, and I was hanging around those folks, maybe their behaviors would have been different. But I'm like, well, this mm-hmm. is the industry I want to get into. And this is what I'm going to sort of model my behavior. So that's what you saw. Yeah. So I will finish it up with um, with Mr. Tom Brokaw, which which I also also very nice guy, you know, always a nice guy. Ran into him in different situations and and, and had to do network stuff with him. So what was that experience um, with Tom? Well, that when I left the page office, I got a job as a desk assistant at NBC in New York. Mm, and okay. I actually did both jobs the second semester of my senior year at Fordham because I I got the job as a desk assistant in December of 82. Um, and both the news and guest relations said you could keep, I could, I didn't have to give up my page job because both were going to be part-time because it was my senior year of college. Um, oh, wow. And and it was when Tom Broca was just starting to emerge as the solo anchor. He had co-anchored with Roger Mudd prior to that, the nightly news. Oh. And uh, um, super nice guy. I just, you know, I would run scripts for him and, you know, 
do the wire copy for the newsroom. But uh, the one thing that stands out in my mind, and this was in October of 1983, it was a crazy week with um, uh, the Marine Corps barracks getting blown up in Beirut mm. and U.S. Inv invading Grenada. That same week is when Jessica Savage died. Mm. And, and it was like the Tuesday of the week. And it happened overnight. I was working the midnight to 8 a.m. shift or whatever. And um, the phones are ringing off the hook. And I, one of your jobs as a desk assistant, you pick up the phone and it was Tom Brokaw. And he had somehow heard, I think someone called him, but he called the desk to get more information like, hey, what's going on with Jessica Savage? And I told him, you know, that she was in Philly in a car with her dog and her boyfriend or fiance, whatever he was. And they had gotten into an accident and the car went into a ditch and she is drowned. And you know, they're still trying to get all this other kind of information, but that's how we, that's what we know at this, this moment. And again, for people today, they, they, they probably, what the heck are you talking about? But it was Jessica Savage. who was, you know, the weekend anchor. She, she was a big name at NBC at the time and she had drowned. And, and his comment was what a star crossed life. And he hung up the phone. I happened to mention, Hey, that was broke on. He, and they yelled at me like, Hey, next time he calls, transferring to us like you know <laughs> one of the elders in the room right. i was the 21 year old desk assistant punk and kind of uh, but i figured hey i picked up the phone broke right. our ass and i told him you know here's right. what happened and uh so kind of i you know no big deal in the scheme of things but on that particular early morning i broke the news to him about the details of you know one of his colleagues death wow and it's funny because i would do the promos for news you know, working in creative services. And again, like I'm writing a script about some major news story. And again, what the hell do I know about, you know, <laughs> world news and everything at 21 years? And I'm writing this stuff. And I'm like, if I, I'm writing like, like, let me get these details right. Because you're, you're writing stuff that millions of people are going to, you know, see. So it's like, you know, you kind of have to get those facts correct of like oh, what you're saying. Yes. Um, you know, uh, and I and, and again, the internet didn't really well it didn't exist back then, so I don't know. You know where the hell I got those where the facts was, mm -hmm. and of course that you had to get it approved by the news director and the uh, my. The there were layers of editing. Well, there sure. was, yeah, they had to check it, but yeah, it was like so. Here it is. You know, you 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 pick up the phone. And then and then you tell Brokaw she died. And then and then someone says, no, no, uh, she she slided. She slided to the third. And you're like, oh, like like, you know, you can imagine giving him the wrong information that you misheard oh, yeah. something, you know, um, but it's like, no, you was, better, you know. I, fortunately, I was confident, you know, because we were making the calls and getting the calls from, you know, the authorities and the hospital and this and that. I was pretty sure I had it right. You know, and he wasn't getting ready to go on the air and announce right, it. He just, right. You know, was probably going to roll back over to try to get some more sleep, but, uh, you know, wanted right. the, the facts as we knew him. And I felt pretty confident giving him the, you know, the skinny. Right. Wow. It's yeah. And it, it, it's funny because, again, just being in those cir circumstances, um, um, being, you know, g giving that information. And, and actually, I'll give a shout, a shout out to Michael Schreibman if he's listening. We were doing the the live um, um, elections one year. And Mike Schreibman, who's a genius in in all things um, uh, technical, he figured out how to get the 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 res election results, and we were going to put them as lower thirds live on the air. And Mike Schreibman, God bless him, said the only person that could manage this is David Katz. So somehow oh, wow. he got me to do it, and we had a, we set up all these. It was so funny. We set up all these computers and all these factories. Actually, he set it all up. 
I managed it, but we had we had a we had a bunch of folks, and the information was coming out of the fax machines, and I guess we were handing it to people that were physically typing it. I think into Basies, which was the computer at the time. Oh, that and sounds that, right. And, yeah, and then that would translate it on air. So like 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 so so it goes from like you know out of the comp- out of the printer or or fax into someone's hands and then on the air. So people at home are now seeing that so-and-so, mm. you know, won this race. And literally <laughs> I could have handed them, you know, today's, you know, the the price of French fries at McDonald's and they would have put it up <laughs> on the air. It just oh, seems, it, it just seems so weird. And I, I You're saw Mike- You're with this power. <laughs> yeah, I saw Mike at a WNBC reunion, like right before the pandemic. And I, we recounted that story and he was like, nope, that's what we did. And I said, I'm, it was just so funny because what the hell? You know, it just seems so, it seems so random. <laughs> anyway. Have that responsibility and, you know, right. and not, uh, not fail. That's pretty great. <laughs> right. And exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think also, and especially in news, and I'm sure you experience this every day, man, the pressure of breaking news and having to write and produce that story, get it on the air. Like, you know, your deadline is this. There's no, hey, let's talk about it later. Hey, I'm on my phone. I'm on, I'm going to, you know, and I think that, um, you know, you know, all the, all the folks, the kids today and, 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 you know, working from home and doing all that. But when, but back then, and especially because you're working in news, I mean, there's hard deadlines. And when, when that deadline is when, 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 when the five o'clock rolls around and, and I guess you say you have a five, I don't know what they tell you, you have a five, 10 hit. Is that what they tell you? Sure. You know, so, yeah, okay, Bob, like you got a five ten hit. So you're writing and producing and saying, you don't have all the facts. You're cutting the story, whatever you're doing. And it's like, it's now five o'clock and it's five Oh one and it's five Oh two. And you, that, that pressure until somebody's experienced five Oh three and, and, and being live. And I used to go out with the news crews for news 12 in, in New York. So I would do all the live feeds and I'll give a shout out to uh, Rich Marino. We had a satellite truck and we would, we would do that live. I mean, until you've had that live, <laughs> had to get something on the air live. There's no, give me another minute, you know, give me another. It's like, no. boom, <laughs> you don't know pressure. And, and I think again, that definitely uh, forged my whole or created my whole life because a deadline is a deadline. And I don't care if that <laughs> to chew my leg off, I'm mm-hmm. going to make that deadline. And I think literally in 30 years, I don't think I've ever missed any deadline ever because, and I, and one That's of the fantastic. things, yeah, I tell people, I, you know, I mean, luckily I didn't, not in news, but I'm like, there is 24 hours in a day. So if it's due tomorrow at nine, well, it's five o'clock. So I, I still got all this time to to get it done, which again is insane. But, you know, but that's what it is. You know, there is there is 24 hours in a day to get it done. And and as a matter of fact, when I get off the, the podcast with you, I'm going to feed some more stuff to someone, you know, I, you know, that we have some things to do. And I'm like, well, it's only five o'clock. I got it. Due, you know, I, I needed to get it to them till at nine tomorrow morning. I have plenty of time, you know. So, but it it disappears quickly. One of the one of my first uh, news editors when we were we missed a deadline early on or a slot of a story, and his his uh, thing was, and it stuck with me. We're not making MGM musicals here. This is the news. You give us the mm. best you got when we're ready for it, and mm. you can't say, "Oh, I need ten more minutes" because it's we're going to make it even better. If it's right. due at a certain time, it's due right then, and yeah, you don't you don't have that luxury. 
right that's true yeah it really is amazing that and and that's that's you know we all want to make it better but it is true it's do you know we have to it's it's ready um and we we have to you know it's you gotta you gotta pop the tape out of the out of the recorder mm-hmm. uh i don't know if you do, you do you even use tape anymore no not anymore it's all okay. digital wow. little cards it's amazing wow. so yeah i mean we had you know uh beta tape you know so it was like at some point three quarter inch tape back in three, the day. yeah you had to pop that tape out to physically run it down the hallway you know at 90 miles an hour to get it to master control to physically put it into the deck to hit play you know it's true you it's like well how how much more time we have okay we got two minutes but you know and like you're trying to do it and it's like sounds so silly but two minutes and then it's like and and i I, you know you know my the the you know pop we we need the tape we need the tape we need it we we got it we you know one more minute you know no we need it it's insane well, I used to call it running for broke because I would I would always try to dress nicely for my desk assistant job there at NBC. Um, you know, the luxury of computers, you write a script, now hit save. It's on the teleprompter from the newsroom to the teleprompter immediately. Wow. Back in the day, if there was a late breaking story and one of the producers was typing it on like four or five pie uh, paper, you literally would grab it from the newsroom. The newsroom was on the fifth floor. The studio was on the third floor. They dedicated an elevator during the show. So there was an RCA, mm. now Comcast building. It was GE. Back then it was the RCA building. So there was one of the brown suited RCA elevator operators on the fifth floor waiting. You Run down the hall, get in the elevator, zip you down the third, run all the way down. So I, I would wear, wear sneakers. I, I had a pair of sneakers at work because I called it running for broke. You'd literally, I would run, you know, as fast as I've ever run in my life down the hallway with a script to get it to the director, into the studio, to the teleprompter, you know, studio to Brokaw. I mean, now today, people who don't know anything but computers would be like, get out of here. You talk about running tapes from, you know, an edit room to the playback. We literally had to run scripts from the fifth floor to the third floor using an elevator with like no time to spare. And, uh, you know, I'd also, you know, before I know we're we're going over time here, I would like to just give a shout shout out if I could to a couple of the pages. When I started on June 21st, 1982, it was actually the day that Prince William was born. So I'll always remember that, the the future king. Um, Anne Louise Wallace, Mike Albert, and I started on the same day. Anne Louise Wallace still works for NBC, has all these years. Mike, unfortunately, died uh, back in the late 80s of cancer. But uh, I mean... Robin Sandlofer was the head of the page office who hired me, um, got the call on June 18th, 1982. So I'll ever, you know, be in her debt. And Tim Delaney was one of the pages who kind of helped teach me, you know, how to do the job on the job. Um, as you were saying, David, earlier, there was no real manual for it. But, um, you know, he was the guy that on those Saturday nights when literally on occasion, there were nights for Saturday Night Live. When they would say, look, we need 10 people in the studio. Like they did not want an empty seat in the studio audience. And even then, and certainly today, you know, the the competition to get tickets to see SNL is great. There were nights where Tim Delaney would be saying, all right, Bob, we got to hit the streets. And literally at about 11, because then the show started at 1130, not 1135 or whatever it is now. 1120, 1125, we'd be out on 49th and 50th Street and 6th Avenue trying to round up somebody who had the next 90 minutes free and say, do you want to come see Saturday Night Live? And 
there would be people like, oh, heck yeah. And we'd run them up to uh, the ninth floor, bring them into the studio at the last minute to see the show. And so Tim Delaney was one of the pages who, you know, was there with me on those nights and was very helpful. And so I just wanted to mention a couple of names of, of and and Jeff McMahon, Ed's son was a, a, a page when I was there. Oh, um, really? And a oh, great guy. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so, so just, yes, so there I could name, I think we had 28 pages on staff at the time. Again, there was no tour then. Um, mm. It was just starting up as I was leaving the office, but uh, you know, definitely some names of people that, uh, you know, I'll never forget part of my, uh, my youth yeah, <laughs> introduction and, into television. And I tell, and I tell folks, you know, I, 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 whenever I talk to young folks, you know, I said, you know, the relationships that you met, that you for, you know, forged, that you created when you were 20, you know, I said 30 years from now, you're going to, you're going to remember these folks. And it, it's weird because, you know, the mid, you know, the, the middle, the mid 30 years, sure. A lot has happened, but I guess we're so impressionable and just, I don't know, everything's forming when you're 20, 21 and you really create those special bonds. And now, you know, when you look back and then mm. having these careers and then, you know, and, and again, it's been great when, you know, talking to a lot of the, the pages that have been on the show and they are being reached out to by other pages and then on the Facebook, they're all talking and it's like, oh my God. And they're like, they're so excited to talk to each other and to, to share these stories. So it, it, it's a special it really fraternity. Is, it really sorority. is. Yeah. It really is amazing. It's, it's, I, I feel I'm to this day, I've often said it's the best job I ever had. And to this day, it's the luckiest break besides meeting my, my now wife back in the day, but the luckiest break I ever had and being born to great parents. But right. so I could name a few all things, good. but I would say, those getting, are all very good answers. So shout you. out to the parents and the wife. So that's, those are absolutely, that's terrific though. I, but, but, terrific. but getting that call to be a, to back in June of 1982, you like to be a page, you know, something I applied for and had prayed about and hoped for to get that call from Robin Sandlofer and say, yeah, uh, there's a job if you'd like it. Uh, one of the luckiest things that ever happened. And it's so funny because, again, the, in their mind, you know, I mean, they, they they probably, you know, treated it, you know, I mean, they may have treated it as a job and, you know, hey, we have an opening. We're going to call these people. And and it's true. It's like, it, it NBC was the only place I wanted to work, you know, be a page. And I had applied to different places. And, and if, uh, if, 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 um, um, uh, Brian Grossman, we, we started as pages together and he'll tell a funny story. Cause I've, I've repeat, I've said a lot of most of the stories that experience that I've experienced, but Brian has a, another layer of things. Huh. So he'll, he'll tell some funny stories about, you know, about me applying what I said and, and applying for other jobs, but this was the best job. This is the only job I wanted. And I was so grateful. And I, and I wonder if the people that, you know, made that phone call to you and said, Oh, mm -hmm. there's a position open. I wonder if they thought much about it and realized that like, like, you know, it's like a slow motion thing. It's like, I'm picking up the phone and I'm going to dial Bob. Does Bob know that this will change the rest of his life? And, and, I don't know if he knows it. And, and I will say, and I'm going to say it, Mary Rothschild. Um, oh, yeah. Mary Fr Frisbee. Janice Mary Pippen Rothschild knows. was there when I was there, for sure. Oh, she was, um, yeah. oh, oh no. absolutely. Yeah, I'll just, well, let me just, let's see. Mary, um, uh, Janice, Kathy D'Elia, Griffin, um, you know, of course, Chris Sulger and Brian uh, were all the folks there. But but so, again, I can never thank them enough. Um, and Mary Rothschild, 
I used to spend, she was so amazing. And, and, and I used to spend a billion hours in her office. When I finished being a page, I would then come back and sit in her office for a thousand mm. hours. So tell me about Mary Rothschild. How do you, cause that's she was just, she, she was, was still there. I, she was, I think she was like just under Robin Sandlofer, who was the head of the page office. And I said the name earlier, Peter Tyndall. It, I hadn't thought of it, but it just came out. And I, I'm usually pretty good with names. I think he was head of guest relations. He was an older gentleman. Robin Sandlofer was, uh, you know, the head of the page office. She's the one who hired me. But Mary Rothschild was right there. And, um, oh, yeah, he was a, a big part of that office. Wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I really appreciated her. She was she was really good. And again, you know, uh, probably tortured her a lot. But I would I would go <laughs> into her office and and again. And Mary, if you're listening, you know, I'll get teary eyed. But it's like, I don't know if she realizes, you know, you know, there was a lot of, um, you know, like, you know, do I take the fork in the road? Like, what do I do here? Mm -hmm. What do I do there? So, you know, sitting in, in Mary's office, asking her question upon question, you know, what should I do? What do you think of this? What do you think of this? And then when I got my job at WNBC, there was a lot of, you know, that was not easy uh, and and working in news. So again, a, a, a similar to David Spade, a calming place was if I was working in news, I would go back to the page lounge and maybe just wow. sit and talk to Mary and, 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 you know, get her advice. And it was like, it was like, it was very comforting and, and, and it made me feel good where I could like mentally compose myself to go back up to the zoo of the newsroom mm -hmm, or something. Mm -hmm. So, so I really appreciated Mary and, and again, Janice and absolutely and, you know, all those guys, all those guys were, were great. So it's uh you know, it was like Shangri-La. You know, it was like this, like almost a mythical thing, because when people I didn't I didn't for whatever reason, I didn't tell a lot of people. Not that I was afraid that they were, oh, can I get tickets to this? Mm. And I wasn't embarrassed. I just was almost stunned by my good fortune because I was working in a deli in my hometown, you know, up and going to school at Fordham when I got the call and got this job. And I'm now in carte blanche at 30 Rock. I'm showing people where to go and walking through the place and meeting people. I think I, I I often was again not embarrassed, but just kind of stunned by my good fortune. And I would, if people say, "Hey, so where, where do you work?" I'm, oh, in the city. Oh, whereabouts? Oh, you know, Midtown. I, I was always oh, hesitant it, really? to go. Oh, yeah, and and I almost felt like if I told them, it's like, "Oh, you're bragging or something," because it was so mm. unbelievable that I had that job. I was for what? That's maybe a, just a weird that's psychosis part of me. I was hesitant. To, to blurt that out. My good friends and family obviously knew what I, I did, but I'd run into someone from town and be like, hey, what are you up to? Why are you on the Long Island Railroad? Oh, I'm going to work. Where do you work? Oh, in Midtown. What a oh, because you'd go in in street clothes, go to the locker room and put on your your blazer and your slacks and what have you. Um, I was always just kind of not forthcoming wow. for whatever reason. And I think mainly because I, I felt like if I said it, 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 it almost sounds, you know, untrue or, you know, right. too too hard to believe that oh yeah you're going to work at nbc yeah right you're going to work at letterman <laughs> so i just wouldn't say wow oh that's so interesting that that <laughs> is weird. interesting and again you know depending on you know you know some pages you know didn't like giving the tours and some you know some people just you know there were some that just didn't feel the way we felt um oh. uh you know some i ah, gotta give a tour you know and i remember i'll give a shout out to brooke Brazel who who was on the podcast she said she came to nbc and i guess saw a 
um, you know, went on a tour or whatever. And she saw the pages and she goes, she goes, yeah, I, I saw those security guards, you know, like she thought they were security <laughs> guards, you know, little did she know. And then, you know, she went to become a page. But but yeah, in the eyes of the general public, we kind of look like security guards. You know, we're we're we're, we're hired ushers, to, you know, ushers. Right? Exactly. And and again, for those that that didn't mind ushering, which which granted we did, you know, I guess we really did usher. Um, if you if you if you um, used it to your advantage and and make the connections and do all the things that people do to to be, you know, sort of get in. That's the way there's no other way you can do it. Um, and I, and like I said, the program and it's funny, there are some I do have some folks that are currently in the program or maybe they just finished recently that might be on because I really oh, want to hear yeah, 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 yeah. what, what, the, it's like what today. the current deal is, because it because it really it sounds like it's changed. And even for when you did it, it, it does it sound a little bit different. But um, but yeah, so I'm so grateful. And I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Okay, oh, and if I can give one more shout out yeah, to the, go for the it. Goulding yeah. family. <clears throat> I don't know if you've you ever heard of Bob and Ray. Yes. Old comedians. They yeah. worked right there at, at NBC. I mentioned Chris Elliott earlier from Letterman. Mm -hmm. His father, Bob Elliott, was the Bob of Bob and Ray. The, the Ray of Bob and Ray, Ray Goulding, was from my hometown, classmates with his daughter, his, his uh, youngest child, who invited a dear childhood friend of mine and I into... Saturday Night Live back in, I believe it was the spring of 79. So our senior years in high school, Bob and Ray co-hosted SNL that week with, it was called Bob and Ray, Jane, Lorraine, and Gilda. It's on YouTube uh, if you want to look it up. So the main, Bill Murray was there to kind of warm everyone up. Willie Nelson was the musical guest, but it was Bob and Ray, Jane, Lorraine, and Gilda. That was the show. The Goulding family invited my friend Scotty Douglas and I to come in to ride the limousine with their family into Manhattan. We could go to the live show at 1130. The family went up, up to the, you know, eighth floor, ninth floor for the whole evening. But for the dress rehearsal that night at 830 or whatever, they parked us in the page office, the page on the mezzanine level. And that's when I first met a page and was like, oh, what do you guys do? And they kept coming and going and wearing their fancy, you know, blue blazers. And that was my first introduction, even though I had gone to see uh, Jeopardy back in the day, and there probably was a page in the studio then, I didn't recognize them or it didn't ring a bell. But that night in in 79, when I went to, to SNL as a guest and hung out with pages for a couple of hours off and on different pages, I was I left there and said, God, that's I want to get into television. How do you do it? You know, and right. you had the radio station on Long Island and this this chance meeting of pages at NBC uh, on this night of SNL three you know, over the course of the next couple of years, when's the right time to apply this and that. And I did a few years later. And again, when I got the job, it was like, Oh, that mezzanine area is now my office space. Right. You know, again, I, I didn't, I didn't know what they fully did that first right. night, except they seemed like ushers, a little bit of security, but it was the key job. Well, in, and in, in most of our, you know, the beginnings of our careers. Right. And it, um, and it's funny because Vicki Stewart, which is going to air in, in a few days, she said she went out to lunch with her, who I guess now is ex-boyfriend. They were by 30 Rock and they saw some pages and she was like, oh, uh, I want to be a page. I want to be. And the boyfriend 
said, well, go talk to to Don Pardia. Go talk to him. She's like, I'm not going to go talk to him. And I think the boyfriend went over to the pages and says, what what, what do you all do? You know, what, what is all this page thing? And the next thing you know, Vic, Vic, Vicky Stewart, you know, wow, was a page and, and she's done some. She did work for Nickelodeon, did a lot of promotion stuff, did a ton of stuff. But again, it all stemmed from just taking a that chance. chance. So so actually, so what I'm going to say for anyone listening, are your task in whatever capacity that you do to find somebody young and to somehow share some knowledge or pay it forward or give a little bit support to anyone that has any interest in the field that you might be in, because literally you may change the world in the future. And it could be as simple as just seeing someone that has some interest in what you're doing and just offer some advice, tips, let them let them shadow you for a day, you know, whatever it is. But that's such something so insignificant could literally change somebody's life, which is amazing. So, amen. So that's my that's my homework for everybody. Well, I love that. Bob, I can't thank you enough. I this has been oh so fascinating. Goodness. I loved every you single so of your stories, and I probably could listen to another nine hours. Um, but <laughs> thank it was, you, David, very much. So great. So, uh, so I appreciate it. So, let's um, give it up, everybody, for Bob for uh, being our wonderful guest today. Woo-hoo! Thank you, guys, very much. Well- that's to you, David. Thanks for having this uh, this forum and for inviting me to be a part of it. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much. God bless you. Thanks for listening to A Page in History. A Page in History is produced by David Harris Katz Entertainment. For more information on our television shows, syndication, and more, go to dhcats.com. And to listen to more episodes of A Page in History, or if you've been lucky enough to call yourself one of the world-famous NBC pages and would like to appear on the show, go to apageinhistory.tv.